So welcome back. Those of you in, at the Brooklyn site who are new, um, the, the good news is that last week's lecture is on the web, so nothing is ever lost in this class, and you can catch up and be on the same point as everybody else. You and Alice, so guys, yesterday on the line. It's going to take you three weeks. one microphone. No, 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 no. I ordered two textbooks. It should come back from there. And one last sound check. I feel like I'm splitting the groundlings' ears Yeah, we hear you, but somebody's chattering somewhere. I'm guessing it's San Diego. Okay. <laughs> well, it couldn't be perfect. Great. Okay. So, welcome to everybody. Um, we're going to talk about electronic com computing. I had the privilege of hearing some of the text uh, snicker early on that anybody would have such an old-fashioned prefix, but they weren't at the first lecture. We've, we've gone through the world of computing with sort of moving mechanical parts, and now everything's up to date, and we're going to talk about electronic computing tonight. I'm not going to try and reprise the last lecture, uh, but I do want to admire the scenery a bit. And in particular, one of the reasons that you do history is you look for the things that recur, right? Are there things in the DNA of information industries that just keep recurring over and over again that as a policy person, you kind of expect this problem to show up and maybe there are old solutions that can be made to work again. And I think the overwhelming feature that we got from the first lecture is that this is a tipping industry. Unlike, or even more so, than most big industries in America, this industry tends to throw up one and only one dominant firm, and then there's some around the edges. Um, and you'd like to sort of, in the best Sherman Act sort of way, just break up that firm or cut out that firm, but you have a more difficult choice than that. What are the things that drive this monopoly dominance? Well, one thing that drives it is standards. We saw that with punch cards. Um, would we like to all work on 17 different standards? No, we wouldn't. The thing that facilitates monopoly is also the thing that we value as consumers that makes the product valuable in the first place. It's inextricably linked. That's a real policy problem. If you, you, you can't just do the naive thing and break up the monopolist. And even more deeply, there's the question about innovation. We made a case last time that IBM you know, always had a monopoly at any given point of time, but they did a lot of innovation to hold on to that monopoly. This went by the buzzword of Schumpeterian competition. You'll hear that more tonight. Um, do you want them to give up innovation? Maybe this isn't such a devil's bargain. Maybe in the long run it's more important to have vigorous innovation than at any given point in time the lowest possible choice. That's, that, again, would be a bargain that you have to make a trade-off that you have to be aware of. And finally, also related to punch cards and standards, we saw about consumer lock-in effects, um, that consumers tend to use a particular standard, a particular vendor that creates monopolists, but they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it because it really would be more expensive for them to, to convert over every five or ten minutes to the other standard. Uh, you can't come up with solutions for the market that just ignores that kind of fact. Now, the world that we ended with, the world at 1940, um, is a very divided world by our standards. There is one nexus of machines that are military and scientific machines, and there's another one that's about doing commerce and governance. The first set are beginning to look like computers. The second set are still IBM punch card machines. Uh, and what's interesting about that, our world looks very different than that, 
But what it does is it begins to show you that there are actually choices because the world of commercial and governance machines, of IBM machines, patents are very important, particularly for the simple ones, the things we saw about adding machine companies. Uh, and the military and scientific machines are largely being done in other modes, not in patent modes. Grants, contracts to build a, an item, maybe a one-of-a-kind item for just one customer in, at, at the ballistics ground at Aberdeen, Maryland. Um, and so you get the idea from this world that you actually have a choice. You, you have various policy levers. You don't have to just always say, well, patents are the right thing. Conversely, contract research for the government is the right thing. You have a choice, and you need to develop an instinct about when those choices make sense to pick patents over contracts or vice versa. And some of the stories we, um, we told last time is that patents are a great way to get companies to go out and find new uses for it once they have a technology. The customer doesn't know about the technology. It's incumbent on the, on the company to go out and search for those users to show the customer that, hey, I have this new technology and it would yield value for you. And this is, of course, the quintessential benefit. I didn't invent this observation. But the quintessential thing that IBM does really, really well, they know their customers' needs. That's a, a skill that, that serves them very well as they go into the world of electronic computing. On the other hand, patents raise the price of a good once you have it. That's what they do. They create a monopoly in knowledge. Knowledge doesn't normally have a monopoly. The legislature comes in and gives you one. That's what the patent right is good for. And if you could get away with not having that, well, you would. And in some cases you can. You can have a prize as a reward instead of a patent. And there are benefits and, 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 and uh, drawbacks to, to replacing patents with prizes. But again, there's this rich idea of choices, which you know, when you think about policy, you don't want to start saying, well, what we'll do is round up the usual suspects, patent everything. You know, If that's true, there's very little for the policymaker to think about. You have to think about as many options as possible and think about them shrewdly. Um, the other problem with patents is that sometimes the patent reward isn't as valuable as it ought to be. We did this model last time, it's not really a model, but this observation that, you know, what society wants is B minus C greater than zero. Value should exceed the cost of the invention. And the patent monopoly doesn't always do that. Um, it only gives you about half the value um, to society. And the rest of the time, if you have a very expensive invention, but one that's still worth doing, patents may not get you there. And finally, uh, a real theme in last time's talk, uh, this is an industry where there's so much expertise within the companies that the outside world doesn't have. And one face of that is that when a company like IBM goes and tries to get outside financing, and particularly when a little information company tries to get outside financing, the banker kind of looks at them and crosses their arms and says, I don't believe you. And it's very hard to get external funding. And so what we saw last time is these firms are perpetually doing things from internal capital. And of course, that favors big firms. Um, I mentioned prizes. Prizes have a drawback, too, which is that you have to say what you want. That's often hard to do in a way that gets the best technology. I need to, adv ad I need to announce in advance what I want. But you know, as technology advances, the actual product might not be what I described. But if I have a prize and I offer and I make a contract to reward the thing I envisage in my head, then I have to pay that out to whichever 
invention is closest to that, even though we may discover, as people try to push these technologies, that the thing that wasn't in my head is really the best thing for society, it won't get the prize, right? So there are disadvantages to prizes, but as I say, this is a rich set of choices for you to begin thinking about as we go through the course. And finally, you know, the whole military and scientific face of this, um, you don't need patents at all when you're only going to build three machines or one machine and the customer is the government and they know exactly what they want. Um, there's no great mystery there. The sponsor knows what he wants, he can contract to buy it. But of course in that world you may have problems, right, because you advance Mr. Babbage a lot of money and he keeps saying he can build the thing but maybe he can't and you have increasing doubts and you end up with a pile of uh, exquisitely machined gears sitting on a garage floor and you're out 17,000 pounds and you know even in those days the newspapers made you made people embarrassed so politicians don't want to get in the <coughs> business of paying somebody because he says he can do something and you know patents are inherently honest you don't get paid unless you make something you can sell to consumers grants have this downside does that mean that patents are always better than grants? No. I will stop the commercial now, but this is a commercial for agnosticism. It is crazy to go through life believing that patents are inherently morally more moral than grants or vice versa. What you should look at it is the way an engineer looks at things. Uh, everything has strengths and weaknesses, and I should be unsentimental. Pick whichever one works best. All right, so that's the um, <coughs> redeeming social value public policy lecture, and we'll go back to history now. So we stopped at the beginning of the Second World War, and the story of the Second World War is that suddenly, there we will see there were ideas floating around, but suddenly calculation has an electronic face. People are building real, by golly, computers, electronic computers. And what are the lessons that you sort of take out of the war? What are the big three themes? Well, the first one is not really specifically about computers, but it's about high-tech research. Vannevar Bush, the same guy who was busy building differential uh, analyzers in the 1930s, uh, is now running the entire R&D effort for the American government. Uh, this is probably good news for people who want to build computers, right? Uh, but beyond that, he has this incredible success and people look back on the funding of high-tech research in the Second World War the same way but more so that people now look back on the Apollo program with a sense of wonder that you could do so much in so little time and if you ever want to play sort of a, a good bar game uh, try and ask of all modern technologies you can think of when were they first invented in some form and an enormous number of times the answer is between 1939 and 1945 there was this incredible leap forward in technology and we're still sort of stunned by our own success and we'll speculate a little bit at the end but the wartime model um, was important first of all because the US had done it very badly in the first war we basically drafted chemists into the army and told them to think that didn't work um, Thomas Edison took over and was going to rationalize R&D he didn't know how to do it either the wizard of Menlo Park this was a big setback for his reputation and our faith. In the Second World War we did something different. We had had a, a tradition of big science in the 1930s, large teams of academics working together and those groups were basically made larger and expanded to include industrial scientists and that way of doing research was very successful and very powerful and you'll see it replicated in this course in later generations but the first place that people <coughs> tried to make products in that mode with these teams of dedicated groups 
is in the Second World War, and it has this creation myth associated with it that it was just phenomenally successful that time, and we go through the rest of history trying to see if we can do it again, right? The second story, this is a commercial, is that there was an enormous, most of you know, code-breaking effort in the Second World War. This actually stayed a secret until the early 70s. I remember reading all sorts of solemn histories that got everything wrong because the authors didn't know until the early 70s that we were reading the Germans' mail, right? Um, and these were, in the end, electronic devices, and we're going to have a speaker who will bring in some of this hardware and talk about it, but for our purposes, the thing to, to mention is that, look, what was the problem? Well, you knew what these machines looked like, and therefore you knew certain relations in the coded messages, certain relations that the decoded message had to obey. So you knew, for instance, that these were machines that had three rotors that each moved periodically, and there were electrical connections that went through all three rotors and back. And that meant, for example, to avoid short circuits, you could never have a code that transposed S into S, or any alphabet letter into itself. And you also knew that each time somebody pushed the key on this thing, one of the rotors would advance. And so the previous state of the rotor had a relationship to the one that followed next, and vice versa. And sometimes you could guess the text. There was a weather ship that the Germans had out into the Atlantic, um, that always sent back the temperature. Why? Because, temper because weather systems go from west to east and the Germans needed to have somebody out there reporting to them what the weather was so that they would be able to do weather prediction as well as the Allies. And the Allies would cheerfully notice that that ship was there and they'd know it was 64 degrees, so they knew the message for that ship must have 64 degrees somewhere inside. And so you had all these little clues that governed the logical structure of the code you were trying to break and the point of the machinery was to stare at, the, at, at all the answers that fit those logical connections and, and reject all the others. And at first that was done mechanically, but you can't reprogram mechanical things. And there was a disaster in 1942 where the, the Germans introduced a new rotor to their system and everything went dark for a month. I mean, a huge disaster. A lot of ships went to the bottom of the ocean because of this. And so that they said, not, not again. From now on, we're going to make all this stuff electronic so that we can reprogram it, right? So you have enormous numbers of vacuum tubes doing logic, as we would say now, on these messages, and it has this reprogrammable capability. That's not a computer. This thing is not a general purpose computer. But in a world where you were wondering if vacuum tubes were not reliable enough to do computing at all, well, this was a really valuable experience for the computers that we're following in the next couple of years. And what we'll talk about tonight is there were all sorts of programs in, in pioneering computers that suddenly became economically viable. People had had this vision in the 1930s, but there was no money to do it, that suddenly became economically viable when the war started. And there was suddenly, in the jargon of last time, this enormous V in problems like artillery that had not existed in the 1930s. Am I going backwards? I am. Um, so I, I'm not the most qualified person in the room to say this, but I want to give you a little bit of a sense about uh, how these objects worked because some version of the same thing is at work in all the laptops that you have sitting in your table right now. And it's bad business to believe that it's magic, right? That's ultimately debilitating. So I don't want to tell you how you can build one, but I want to persuade you that if you thought about it long enough, you could understand it. That's kind of the level of exposition that I'm going to go for. 
Um, and this is a vacuum tube. Some of you will remember that radios used to have these in the back, but it's just like a light bulb. In fact, the early versions that led to the vacuum tube were about the only pure research that Edison ever did. He had this light bulb and he started putting other wires in it and noticing stuff. Um, and the British call vacuum tubes valves. Uh, a, a gate that you can turn on and off, and that's a really useful concept for this course. But how the thing works is as follows. You've got a filament, and if you run a current through it, through this wire here, the little filament there gets hot, just like a light bulb. That's what it is, and that's actually a big deal for contemporary computer people because they're all walking around in, shirt, in, in uh, undershirts and short pants because it's so hot in the room in a Philadelphia summer when they're trying to build these devices. Uh, but anyway, you've got all these, these filaments, they're hot, and what happens is, if you remember your high school physics, they boil off electrons, and the electrons stray away from the filament, but they don't go very far. Why? Because now the filament has more protons than electrons, it's not electrically neutral, so you have this cloud of electrons sort of in here. And that's the story so far, but if I now attach uh, another charge to a second wire here that, that goes with this grid, right, uh, a positive charge there, now the electrons see that as well as the filament, and they will start racing to this gate. <coughs> and in the Wiley Coyote cartoons, as soon as they got to the gate, they would quiver to a stop, right? But what happens in the actual physical world is they're running really, really fast when they get to the gate, and they have momentum. And so they pass clean through, they overshoot, and they hit this plate here, okay? And then once, oh, I am in trouble now. <laughs> Help me. Good. Fairly good. We have a human-induced dither there, I apologize. So they hit this gate, and now a current can run through this wire out of the unit. Okay? And so what's cool about this conceptually, logically, is we now have a device that does AND logic. So So if I energize this filament and I also energize this grid, then the current flows out of here, all right? So when A and B are both on, and only when A and B are both on, I get current out the far side. That's the logical statement, and, if A and B, then output, all right? And you can imagine, you can look this up and we're having a bad night technically. You can look this up in Wikipedia. Uh, you can do things that aren't just and, but or, and not or, and exclusive or, and all the other permutations from Boolean algebra. Um, and the circuits don't look much more complicated than this one. And once you can do that, the highfalutin way to say this is that Bertrand Russell at the turn of the century said all of arithmetic is, can be coded as statements in and and or and these various other basic operations. Uh, but the, the explicit way to say it is, is for me to show you, which I'll do. This, by the way, is what a vacuum tube looks like in the wild. And it has a lot of rods sticking out of it, but basically, conceptually, there are three of them that matter. Uh, this is, and these are transistors with the same three little rods coming out of them, a better way to do the vacuum tube. So how do you do math with this? 
Well, you have a table. This is the table for something called a half adder. But you have two numbers that you want to add. They're binary numbers, 0 or 1. So you have A come in and B come in. And what are the outputs? Well, S, I add them together. But sometimes I'm going to have to carry a digit, right? Because I get up to the next. It's, not, it's in two places, not one. So I also have a carry. And you can look at this uh, in your own time, or you can find it on Wikipedia. But the point is <coughs> that you can reduce these things to logical statements. In particular, if I have this situation, all A and B, then I want to carry, and not otherwise. right? So if it's 1 and 0, I don't want to carry. If it's 0 and 1, I don't want to carry, and whatever. And you can code that with this set of transistors or vacuum tubes or what have you. And you can also want the statement that if I have 0 and 1, I want 1 here. And 0 and 1, I want 1 here and not otherwise. And you can do that with this logical operator. And these things are very simple circuits, just a couple of uh, vacuum tubes uh, connected together. So if you go on something like Wikipedia, you can see how a machine adds in binary. And adding in binary is incredibly natural for exactly this reason. You have a bunch of switches and on-off stuff. But that's not the way the early computers did it. And I just find this charming because it seems to me that this is the dead hand of Pascal. People had been using these mechanical wheels forever. And so what ENIAC actually does in the first IBM machines after the war is they don't do this binary arithmetic. What they do is they take a circuit called a flip-flop. And what a flip-flop is is if I, push, if I put charge here, it remembers a state that has no current coming out of it. If I put charge here, it, has, it remembers a state that has current coming out of this circuit. And it will go on remembering that until I change it. And you can put a bunch of these things in a chain, and you can arrange the chain with a little extra wiring so that there is only one circuit in the chain which is on. The rest of them are in the zero state. And every time I send a signal to the, this completed circuit, it bounces this on. What happens is each of these flip-flops adopts the value of the preceding guy in the chain. And the on state, watch me get this. The on state marches cheerfully around every time you jiggle this circuit. <coughs> so it goes here. I'm going to really live to regret this. And here and here. And you have this thing going around on a wheel, just like Pascal did, except now the wheel is electronic. And because it's electronic, it's fast. All right. So these are ideas that are in the air. And uh, binary arithmetic and the problems that were used by, for these computers, mostly matrix algebra kinds of stuff, uh, had been very current with physicists and engineers from the 20s forward. But you had this natural language for doing it. You had a lot of people who knew this binary trick and could see that there was a similarity to a circuit. These ideas were in the air, but until the war, they were done in sort of a, a low-funded uh, way. So the first person to mention is a Bell telephone engineer named George Stibitz. He gets transferred to the part of Bell telephones that builds these telephone relays, these little metal switches that close when you run a current around them. We talked about them last time. He immediately notices the third day he's on the job, maybe the first day, that, hey, 
these things would be great for doing binary arithmetic. I just got done having a binary arithmetic course in grad school three years ago. This is the same logic. Why don't I build a machine that can add using this? And he builds what I just love, his K model. This has all physical switches, like toggle switches, right? No electronics in it at all. But he does it to show that, uh, that it's possible to get the right binary answer with a whole bunch of these switches wired together, right? I mean, he doesn't quite believe the formal proof. He wants to show that it's actually correct. And so he does this. Why is it a K model? Because he built it on his kitchen. I mean, I just like that. <laughs> um, Bell has modest needs for this. And besides, they're a monopoly. They, they have this very prestigious research facility. Uh, so they build the first one of these for $20,000, but using these relays, right, which are much cheaper than vacuum tubes, but also much less fast, right? They close in about a thousandth of a second. Vacuum tubes are doing this at some fraction of the speed of light. And then the war comes, and he starts making these things for the military, partly for our old friends at the Aberdeen Proving Ground, but more for the NACA, which is the predecessor of NASA, which had been doing very sophisticated aerodynamic stuff since the First World War, really the first model of a federal agency that's doing big-time science in-house. And he has all the functions that you know modern computers have. He has paper tape for input. He has an error checking code, and he has special functions that are wired in these switches so that the machine knows multiplication tables. It doesn't have to figure it out by adding the number seven times or something like that. So that's what he's doing in a fairly cheap way in the States. Uh, another thing that's going on in the States is there's um, a professor named Atanasov at Iowa State who also notices this and would like to do physics problems. And so what he does is he sets up a memory and the memory is a bunch of condensers, a bunch of capacitors, things that store charge for a while on the outside of a drum. And this thing whirls around. So it's slow memory, right? The drum can only go around maybe once a second. Um, and these things are storing charge, and the charge are bits in the modern parlance. And the charge stays there. The only problem is that it leaks away after a while. So what this thing does is it reads all the condensers as they come by. It says, aha, this one had charge has charge on it, I'm going to goose the charge, right? I'm going to add some charge to this thing before it runs away from me. And it keeps doing this. They call this jogging. But the point is that you have this rotating drum. And it works fine, except the whole game with electronics, right, is that you want to have things that are almost massless. And a rotating drum with a bunch of capacitors from Radio Shack stuck on it is not necessarily the most massless object you could use for memory. And this thing would have been much more important than it actually historically was, except that he also has this sort of weird way of doing output. The way the thing prints is it has all these capacitors, right, and tubes and all this good stuff, and they use them to burn holes in a paper card as it comes through, right? That's how the output from this gets recorded. And you can imagine a process that involves burning holes in paper cards eventually runs into the Florida hanging chad problem, and it makes errors periodically. And so you can't actually do really long calculations with it. But he knew that vacuum tubes were better, and he was trying to get that funded. And then the war came, and it all became irrelevant. There is a German who's working on the same problem. His name is Konrad Zeus. Um, and what happens is he's a newly minted civil engineer. I don't know if you guys know much about civil engineering, 
but it is filled with enormously painful mathematical problems. So after about six months of that, this is another case of someone who knows something about what we would now call computing, but also something about the customer's feeling for this. After about six months of this, he comes back to his parents and announces he'd like, one to, build, like to build one in the living room, and he quits <coughs> his job, and 50 years later, he's still giving interviews where he announces somewhat ruefully that they were, and I quote, not very delighted. But it turns out to be a good thing. The first one is all mechanical. He understands that he'd really like to do this electronically, but he shows off the first one to a calculator manufacturer. And this investment in his parents' living room turns out to pay off. Why? Because in 1940, he's in the Wehrmacht, and it looks good in 1940, but it won't look good in 1942. And, and this calculator manufacturer sidles up to the Luftwaffe and says, you know, this guy is wasted in the Wehrmacht. Let's have him build more machines. So he builds machines for the German military, all of them involving relays until the last one. The cheap way to do this right, the Germans never funded this on anything like the scale that the Americans did, but that's true of so many things. Um, he builds these machines with relays. He gets the programming idea. He understands loops and conditional statements. That's a huge intellectual leap. And he ultimately builds one with about 2,000 relays in the closing months of the war. And actually, Europe is sort of bombed flat, and the computer business is slow to take off on the continent. And he's still futzing with this thing in Switzerland in the middle 50s. Um, so, you know, it's outside the, the track of things. But it's a real functioning computer, and you can do research on it. So he had the idea, clearly. He just didn't have the means. Now, the real story, as you guys know, is ENIAC, and in particular, John Mockley and Presper Eckert. And these are actually fairly marginal figures in their university. This is at the Moore School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Mockley was a physics teacher at a place called Ursinus College, uh, whose main product was training high school teachers. Nothing wrong with that, but he wasn't expected to do a, a major research agenda. But he had this dream, like a lot of physicists did, that, gosh, if I had real mechanical calculating power, think of all the orbital problems, all the, all the ballistics problems, whatever I could do in physics that I can't do on the back of an envelope analytically. And he runs around trying to do this cheaply. And he, at one point, finds these fuses in a hardware store that light up. Uh, when the fuse is blown, and he figures out a way to use these things as if they were vacuum tubes. Of course, they're not. They have little moving parts inside. They're slow, but that's where he is in 1939. Where he is in 1941 is suddenly the government says to him and Presper Eckert, who is a, um, a research assistant, he's not a professor at the school, um, look, I can build a version of Bush's differential analyzer, but I'm going to make it out of electronic parts, and look how fast it'll be. And the government spends a half million dollars and 200,000 man-hours, right? How many man-hours are in your working life? An enormous project, uh, group science in the best tradition, to build an electronic analyzer that will do this thing. And it consumes, you know, these get repetitive, but 174 kilovolts, and it has 17,000 vacuum tubes. Zeus is green with envy when he finds out what the Americans have done. Enormously complicated device, not in time for its purpose. It's only completed after the war, but it is in time for the follow-on projects to the atomic bomb. And, you know, one of the first debates between Teller and Oppenheimer gets resolved when they do a calculation on the ENIAC. Um, is this thing a modern computer? Sort of notionally we say it is. Uh, you can exaggerate. It has these decimal wheels inside. That's not really essential. 
It has these 20 accumulators that, that are, the, these are the adding devices that have these electronic counting wheels inside. Um, it has separate memory, and it has, but to program it is really awkward. You have to plug things in before each problem. So it's like the old machines of the 1930s that you spend days and days setting up the experiment, and then you run it, and it takes a, you know, a minute or so. And what I love about this picture, right, there are a lot of pictures of the ENIAC, but the one I like about this is that if you look, this cabinet full of electronics is on casters. And the reason it's on casters is, depending on the problem, you might want it here, or you might want it here, or you might want it here. They're wheeling around parts of the computer in advance of the problem. This is not the modern vision, right? But this is totally in keeping with uh, the sort of collections of card processing machines, right? Where you have different arithmetic units that you would move around and table up. And also in keeping with the differential analyzer tradition, where you have this enormous setup time. It's almost like doing an experiment rather than a calculation, where you get everything just so, and that takes weeks, and you plug things, these parts together in novel ways custom to the problem, and then you do it. And the thing that these guys, and this is another version of this, uh, no casters in this picture, but I'm an old guy, so I have to point out that their, their big fear with ENIAC was that these vacuum tubes would burn out. That turned out not to be true. They ran them at really low power, so they were quite reliable. But they were worried about these vacuum tubes, and when the thing burns out, a light would come on. The thing was wired like that. And so in all Hollywood movies from then until at least Alien, I saw Alien the other night, um, computers always have banks of flashing lights. And Hollywood didn't quite know why that was. But for the longest time, all computers had to have banks of flashing lights. And it's a, it's a memory of the fact that, there, that these vacuum tubes would burn out. And you'd want the light to blink at that time or to stop blinking when the tube was burned out. So as a digression, I want to put your 200,000 man hours in context. There's a uh, new graduate this year from Carnegie Mellon named uh, Luis Von Ahn, who's trying to uh, produce computer games that will trick people into doing useful computation. Okay? And his pitch for this is that it took 20 million man hours to build the Panama Canal. So that's a factor of 100 greater than ENIAC. Okay? But in 2004, 9 billion man hours were spent playing computer solitaire. <laughs> that means about three quarters of a day of solitaire is enough labor to have produced the Panama Canal. May, may I say that the, the, this shows the uh, moral growth of your field? Because the last time I saw a paper like this, it, the idea was that you would trick computers with spam into doing the calculation and sending it back to the sender, which is like carving off a piece of other people's programming time for me. Um, that got published in Nature, but I think you know there were ethical problems. This sounds like it's voluntary. I like it a lot. Okay. So these guys, and, and I think anybody who's ever lived with a problem for a long time realizes that the flash of genius often comes just because you've lived with it so long. But they get the right idea. They realize halfway through all this elaborate setting up and moving things around on casters and plug boards that there's a better way now. And could you just use memory to do the setup and make all that electronic? And so there's actually a disclosure in 1944 where they say, well, we could use a magnetic drum or disk for memory. And then they have the next step, which is the important one, and that memory could control a program with ifs and, and all this branching logic, and you wouldn't have to have people setting up the ENIAC. 
And this gets memorialized, formalized by John von Neumann, great mathematician, one of the people who also formalized quantum mechanics and game theory, just an amazing polymath. Um, but he formalizes it in this report, the first draft of a report on the EDVAC. What's the EDVAC? The EDVAC is the superior version of ENIAC, which isn't going to have this annoying feature of setting up the problems in advance. And so this is where the celebrated von Neumann architectures come from. I think we have the paper posted on the, on the website. But um, the crucial idea that has been lacking, except in Zeus, I guess, implicitly, um, of a computer that actually, the Babbage idea, right, that, that performs calculations according to a preset program and waits to find out what the answer is and has instructions what to do depending on what that answer is, that's finally conceptually in place and everybody in the world knows it because it appears in this celebrated paper. So before we leave this, what are the policy questions? As I say, I think the main question here is you had this wartime research miracle. You'd like to believe you can turn that on and off anytime you want. I'd say the experience in the post-war is pretty clearly we don't do as well. Um, what can we say about why it worked during the war? Well, the first one is obvious. It's the V minus C story. They suddenly had a flood of money to do stuff that people knew perfectly well how to do before, but they didn't have a budget for a million, you know, for, for uh, 20,000 vacuum tubes. Um, the second thing is sort of the tragedy of the Depression. Uh, American universities were well-staffed with smart people. They had good laboratories, but they didn't have a lot of money for research, right? The tragedy of the Depression is not only those people sitting on soup lines and doing nothing and, you know, all that kind of uh, what it does to the human spirit, but that all that labor didn't make another million houses for the housing stock. Uh, that it didn't make all the things that we could have now because of all those people sitting around who wanted to work, right? That's the tragedy of the subject. And a very small part of that tragedy is that American academia had this vast backlog of good ideas that they knew how to do, but no one would give them the money to do it. And so that helped. Um, industry worked with academia much more closely than it has before or since. I think that's because both groups were very bought into doing the same thing for once, right? Academics gave up a little bit of pure research and, and industry certainly didn't make the products they made in peacetime, but there was a war on, as people said, and there wasn't the sort of tugging and hauling that tends to make industry-academic collaborations more difficult. That's a melancholy explanation, right, because that will be true in peacetime. That's just the way things are. And finally, and this is sort of an, in, well, and, and as I mentioned, there was this experience that Vannevar Bush had had with big team research, and that is a permanent lesson, and we do do R&D better after the war because we learned that lesson. And finally, there's the intangible, right? Uh, if you're working on one of these code machines, and at the top level there are only, you know, 100 other workers in the room, you can actually prolong the war by two years by screwing up. And so, you know, there is a sense in which there was probably a certain immediacy that people worked very, very hard and they confessed mistakes and did things that rational economic man would not do because they realized that they were personally culpable for not getting this thing done. So, you know, that's something we'll never have again, uh, but it may be part of this story. Second policy point, immediately after the war, Eckert and Mockley, remember, you know, they're on the cover of Time magazine now, but they're also nobody in particular within the school. They aren't tenured professors or anything like that. Um, and the school says, 
great, we're going to go back to academic research. That means we don't want our professors to have patents. Eckert and Mockley say, uh-uh, we're going to found a company, see you. Uh, and so within a, a few months of the big triumph that these guys from the school are on the cover of Time magazine, they're both gone. And you have to think, well, was the school right about this patent policy? And again, that's very circumstance dependent. If you believe that this was about a technology that every university in the world would go out and build their own machine in the same way that in the 1930s every university in the world had seen Berkeley's atom smashers and built one of their own with help from Berkeley, well patents have no part of that story, you wouldn't have to worry about that. But if you believe it's about commercializing the machine, that you believe that now computers will eventually do commercial stuff, which is a deeply debated point in 1945. People aren't sure these things will ever be anything but lab curiosities and cosseted toys for the military. But if you believe that these things have a commercial future, then engaging patents makes a lot more sense. And I just like this contemporary observer <coughs> quote from someone named S. Reed Warren, a professor at the school. And he says, the school's patent policy was very, very naive. We didn't go out of our way to help people, and our general attitude was, let's make it so it's helpful to the human race, and so on. And what I love about this, all right, is that you see this in policy a lot. Um, the idea about don't use patents to see if it's helpful to the human race is a profound and correct, if limited, policy point, all right? And what happens is he still has this sort of undigested idea that maybe the patent decision was the right one. And so what he says is it was very, very naive. I think you could have challenged him about exactly why it's naive, and it would have been somewhat vague on his part. This is a, good po this is a hard policy <coughs> choice. It is not clear they were very naive. At least you have to say more words than this. Um, but, you know, this is the way people sort of bury these debates, right? We act afterwards as if it wasn't a hard choice. It was a hard choice. Question for you, Doug? Please. So, uh, so, of course, this guy has uh, hindsight to assist him, but uh, as I understand, society kind of tends to cycle through its preferences for uh, different incentive mechanisms. So how was kind of the environment at that time? How was the feeling, general feeling, towards patents at that time? Uh, it's interesting. Patents are secular, uh, are, um, yeah, are, are a cyclical business. Um, and in the 1880s and in the 1930s, 1940s, in the 1960s, um, patents are very disfavored. And everybody believes that that's obvious and right. In the 1930s, what happened was that they had very low production. And that's what monopolies do. And so FDR in the latter 30s decided that the cure was that the economy would come back if you just got rid of all the monopolies. And he hires 200 people at the Justice Department to challenge patents across the board, to take endless cases up to the Supreme Court to cut back on patents. And about 1950, Congress you know, starts to push back and, and the pendulum swings again. But it's really interesting. At various points in human history, we have believed that patents are the be-all and end-all of everything, and they've also been out of favor. And you know, the, the point I'm trying to persuade you of, but this is an extended conversation, is that, hey, they're all right. It's just unfortunately not true that we can write down one rule that, that works for the entire economy. We do the best we can. One question, comment? Please. Um, I may be misremembering, but didn't Boeing have a patent, have their control of a patent removed during World War II? There were, the, that was done with airplanes in the First World War. First World War, okay. 
Um, so and one of the one of the things is the, the analog of that story is the ABC computer uh, actually wasn't very famous until the late 1960s, and then a bunch of lawyers for Honeywell dug it up so that they could get challenge Mockley and Eckert's patent and get it invalidated. And I don't want to be cynical because I'm a lawyer and I'll get into trouble if I'm too cynical and the bar finds out. But we have a wave of the really important patents, the airplane, the automobile, the computer. Those patents tend to get struck down. And there's a suspicion, certainly, that there's some drumhead justice in that, that the judge will look at it and he'll give you a big patent. But if it's too large, he'll find a way to invalidate it. Anyway, the ABC computer becomes a big deal, not in its own time, uh, but in the 1960s, particularly because Mockley had had a look at it. And maybe, you know, he should have mentioned them in his patent application and didn't. It's a lawyer's argument. But yeah, there is this tendency to strike down patents after the fact. And of course, if that happens a lot, the patent doesn't incentivize people in the first place. Okay. So, we have this, the war is over, and the question now is, um, can we make this thing into a commercial device? And for the growth of computing, you know, we've been talking about how value increases and makes computers more plausible. And the government has big new information processing tasks after the war. It's got this whole atomic bomb agenda, which can't possibly be done by human computers, as they were called in those days. IBM wouldn't call its early machines computers because it made them sound like people. And everybody knows a computer is a person. Um, and also, there was this enigma secret that you were using an enormous uh, computing power, basically, to break codes. And general purpose computers eventually supplant the purpose-built machines that uh, uh, had been used in the war and afterward. And then you get this air defense problem, which was tremendously complicated. You have 100 radar stations. You have hundreds of fighters that you need to vector onto a target. Um, how do you decide that in real time and make avoid mid-air collisions and get all the assets covered? It's a tremendously difficult problem, and the, the Air Force is looking at, can we make this thing computerized? Because the wartime systems with human beings moving counters back and forth on maps is just not going to work at, at the speeds of jet aircraft. Um, at the same time, uh, we shouldn't oversell this. Um, everybody made their money in punch card machines. IBM only makes more money from computers than punch cards in 1962. And the really big success stories in the office machine business uh, on, the, on the commercial and government side, the things that get you into fortune as the genius executive all through the 50s, all those machines are punch card machines. Nobody's getting rich off computers. So the challenge is, you know, how do you turn a computer into something that a business can use? And you have this technology, and it's very impressive in some ways, but it's fragile, it's expensive, and it's really unreliable. Please don't make my, ho my payroll hostage to this thing that has to be babysat and periodically repaired. And you can already sort of see the outlines. By 1945, you knew you needed better internal memory. You couldn't afford enough vacuum tubes to do it that way. So they had something called delay lines which was adopted from radar technology. You had a big column of mercury, and you can get electronic devices that thump one end when an electrical signal comes in, and that would propagate down the mercury as a sound wave. Sound waves are really, really slow by electronic standards. And when it reached the far end of the tube, it would thump another one of these electronic devices and make a, a signal come out, an electrical signal, transducer, right? 
And so you kept the memory as a series of pulses racing, but very slowly, down a column of mercury, an acoustic signal. And you would, of course, have to send them around electronically to ping the thing again. But you know, there were oceans of time while these waves were passing down the delay lines uh, in which you could store data. And the problem with that is, of course, same problem by electronic standards, it's slow. You had a faster technology. It looked a lot like a television set called cathode ray tube memory. You've probably noticed you touch the front of your television set. Don't sue me if it's defective. Um, but it has this fuzzy feeling. There's charge on the far side of the television set. And actually, that charge lingers for quite a while. As you notice when you turn off the TV, it's bright for a while still. <coughs> and what they did is they put a, uh, a metal, metal pickups on the outside of this picture tube. And you stored memory as a pattern of dots on the picture tube. And the metal pickups noticed that, oh, this one's turned on. And it would go back just like the ABC computer and goose that particular location um, periodically to keep the charge there on, on that speed. And this is working at the speed of a television set, right? It's spraying electrons back and forth internally. So this is very fast, but it's very finicky for the reason you'd expect. You burn out a lot of picture tubes. They last like a week, and they cost a couple thousand bucks in the late 1940s. Uh, and finally, you have this drum memory idea, where you have a magnetic material on the outside of a drum, but drums spin slowly, and you have a problem. The winning technology for our era eventually is something called magnetic core memory. And what it is is you have a piece of material, a blob like this, and you put a coil around it. And when you turn the coil so the electricity goes in this direction, then I'll get the left-hand rule wrong, right? But the magnetization goes like this. And even when you turn off the coil, that magnetization sticks there until I have a really big current in the other direction, which then rewrites the magnetic field so that it's in the other direction. So this coil can actually sense which way the magnetism is inside this enclosed blob of material. Uh, and that blob of material is magnetically hard. Once I set it up pointing up or down, it stays that way until I really override it intentionally. And so there's a nice kind of memory function there. I can up maybe one bit and, and down maybe zero. Um, and so you've got this nice technology. This is a spin-off of German research in the war. People realize in several places in the US mostly academics, that this is a good technology for computers. And the, the eventual challenge is to miniaturize it. IBM does things like take um, technology for making pills from the pharmaceutical industry and figure out how to make these things really, really small. But that's the way this is headed. It's fast, it's electronic, and it's sort of miniature by their standards. Hey, Steve, um, this is Ed, a quick comment. Mm -hmm. this, this may have been in the book, but it's important to note that uh, delay lines and cathode tubes and drums are inherently bit serial, and cores are, are parallel. So in some sense, that leads to 8-bit or 16-bit or 32-bit data transfers, which you don't get out of the earlier technologies. Absolutely. Um, then you need some sort of external memory. Um, people knew about tape forever. They knew about cards, obviously. And eventually, drums get enlisted into this base, into this thing. Uh, and in the 50s, they start figuring out ways to do plastic tape. But what they knew already in 1944 is that a two-dimensional drum is a disk. And you can fit a lot more data on a disk. And so then the trick is disks are kind of not very stable. They flop around in the wind. How can you make it so that you can store memory on a disk and read it off uh, really, really quickly and not have a big, dumb, rigid drum? Um, and that becomes a technology challenge. But notice that they already knew 
basically by 1950, <coughs> the good ideas for internal memory and external memory, and for that matter, CPUs, they knew that the next thing would be to go to transistors. <coughs> uh, but none of these things exist in a way that you can put them inside a machine. Turning that into an idea, the D in R&D, is going to be a long process, mostly about 10 years for each of these things. So immediately after the war, there's a summer school. All the big players come, RCA, Burroughs, all these guys. And they learn about computers in von Neumann's famous first draft. And the first thing you get from that is a slew. This is only a partial list of academic computers. So the cyclotron culture of sharing computers works great with or without patents. These things get built if that's all the society needed. You know, patents would be sort of a fifth wheel. But of course, that's not all the society needs. And to show you that the, the academic computers are completely serious competitors, An Wang, um, immigrant from China, uh, working at Harvard on their computer, uh, develops is the first guy to make core memory work. And there's a U United States Air Force project down the road in Cambridge that's working on a computer called Whirlwind. And when they put these uh, core memory things into Whirlwind, it runs like a quote unquote a new machine. It's twice as fast. I mean, just this memory is a huge bottleneck. And Wang later uh, founds his own company, of course, you know that name, and patents this stuff and eventually licenses the technology to IBM. And we'll come back to that. Our heroes, Eckert and Mockley, found something called the Electronic Control Company, and they come up with a list of users. And, you know, it's sort of the usual suspects by now. You should, you know, we've had this list a bunch of times, but aircraft companies have big computational demands, just like the Luftwaffe did. Betting, you know, bookies need this, <coughs> clearly. And insurance, Babbage knew about atomic energy, academia, etc. Very familiar list. Um, they have trouble convincing people that it'll work, just like Babbage. Uh, National Academy of Sciences does a study for the uh, Census Bureau, says this thing isn't worth investing in, so does the Bureau of Standards. Nevertheless, eventually the Census Bureau comes around and gives them a contract, and they go, ah, we're in business off to the races. Problem is, familiar problem, last time this will show up in a big way in this history, um, they have almost no marketing force. They're not IBM by any standards. And their engineering is very good, but they never freeze a diagram, right? So they're forever changing stuff, and this makes the rest of the company have fits. How do you learn to manufacture something if the plans change every week? But their real problem is capital, getting financing. And for a while, they come within a whisker of, uh, through a, a cosmic accident. They meet an, uh, an inventor who owns his own company, and this guy in the 1920s had founded something called American Totalizer Company, which, totalizator, I find it hard to say, uh, company, which did what? Which ran the uh, paramutual betting for dog tracks. That's the equipment he made. And he is the one person in the world with money who is capable of making an intelligent judgment not based on Eckert and Mockley's say-so. And he gives them money, and for a while it looks like they're going to take their contract with um, the Census Bureau, and they're going to have plenty of money, and the company is going to be fine. He is a proto-venture capitalist, right? Somebody who actually knows more than the corner banker, who knows enough that he'll <coughs> put money in this invention, and he dies in an airplane crash. And after that, the company is perpetually underfunded, and they sell out to Remington Rand. IBM's also Rand competitor for the last 50 years uh, in 1950. Uh, there is another computer company. There are actually about 30 of them immediately after the war, but these are the ones that become even remotely famous, who are a pet 
of the Defense Department. The Navy and the National Security Agency, newly invented code-breaking arm of the federal government, <coughs> goes out of its way to support these guys to make machines, special machines like the ones that have been made in the war, and eventually computers to solve codes for them. And more than that, they say to these guys, by the way, you can make a commercial version of this computer if you want. So you have this thing that's effectively been paid for by the federal government. Now all you have to do is sell extra copies to the civilian sector. Sounds easy. It's not easy because when you sell to the feds and you're in this sort of hand-in-glove relationship, you have no marketing, you have very few manuals, and you don't have a lot of teletypewriter stuff that would be good for cutting checks and all the things a business would want. Um, so they, too, fold realize that they need some marketing and, 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 and money resources to get manuals to make this thing into something a business will buy and go to Remington Rand. So Remington Rand now owns the other, the, the big computer companies. What was the other company that just went under that went to Remington Rand? What was its name? Electronic Data Computing. Okay. Um, and what about IBM? Well, already in the war, Watson Sr., recognized that electronics were the way to go, and he said, we're going to go all electronic after the war. But he's talking about card punch machines, right, and the logic adders and the memory for that. And his son comes back from the war, and, you know, IBM's a publicly traded company. The father can't exactly make him the next CEO, but he's clearly angling for that. And his corporate strategy is they put him in charge of the electronic part of IBM, and what does any empire builder do? Well, he wants to make his thing more and more important, so he's pushing true computers, that this is what the company has to get into. But, you know, within the world of IBM, he's not very powerful at first, so it takes a while. And after the fact, he tells long stories about there was a time when he was the only person in IBM who knew that electronic computers were the way to go, and I was terrified, but I saved them in the end. You know, you have to take that a little bit with a grain of salt, but nevertheless, he makes it his quest to make IBM enter the computer age, and he's the, the winning side eventually in these power struggles, and his winning side involves building computers. Um, and IBM says in 1946 already, it's a new world. What's new is that, gee, now the government is funding these things, and they say these development contracts are of such a nature that they will be very attractive to anyone without previous private experience. Oh, my God, new companies can come into our cozy little industry. Or patents in the computing field. Oh, my God, IBM had all the patents. Now they're not worth as much. But the patent provisions, the government wants to have the value of any discoveries for itself, at least, unpatented. And IBM treats the government as its, one of its biggest customers, right? They don't really want to give all their patents to the government. But the patent provisions make it doubtful if IBM, which has the lead in the field, can afford to participate in these programs. There's a big trough of R&D money, but maybe we can't sidle up to it. Whereas before the war, IBM was the only organization able and willing to carry on large-scale development of calculators. We don't say computers at IBM. Such development is now taking place on a large scale. And what IBM actually does, as we'll see, is they shift their business model a little bit around to accommodate this new world and ultimately get the biggest <coughs> government plums of all. Um, what is IBM doing for R&D in this period? They're mostly not building relevant machines. Uh, well, it builds a famous thing called the Selective Sequence Electronic Calculator. It's the first calculator computer that has this branching logic. It's the first true computer, uh, but it's electromechanical still. It's a dead end and it's horrendously expensive. You're not going to make this thing into a business computer. Um, meanwhile, they start working on true computers. They work on something that will involve tape memory. And the, the thing here is that 
tapes at this time, you have to start and stop them real quick. It's for a machine, right? And how fast you can start and stop them is a, a bound on how fast the memory works. And over at Eckert Mockley, they end up using steel tape because it's just needs to, to survive tremendous stresses. IBM figures out a way with a very exquisite way of controlling the tape as it goes through the feeder. They use vacuum technology um, to do it with mylar. And mylar is really light, and in this business, F equals MA, it's faster if the thing is light. So their tape readers become faster than anybody else's. And they push on a second machine on magnetic drum storage. One of the things that's really interesting about this is the idea for magnetic drum storage they pick up at an open academic seminar, no patents attached. Okay, what do they build in this era? Well, they build their all-electronic calculator. Um, this is one of these punch card machines, right? It's not a computer. Uh, but they get a lot of experience building stuff with vacuum tubes. They, they end up buying 1.5 million vacuum tubes a year to put in these things. So they are the world's leading expert in how to build logic devices with vacuum tubes. And they do something that's kind of interesting. This, too, is on the, on the syllabus for you. Uh, but what they do is they use a ordinary accounting machine, one that manipulates paper cards, to run one of these IBM 604s. And so you've got an all-electronic machine being controlled not by a human operator, but by another machine reading cards with instructions and branching instructions about what to do and what data to load next and what operations to instruct the machine to conduct in what order. And so you have an old machine that's pushing paper cards back and forth, controlling one of these really fast electronic machines, and it acts sort of like Babbage's idea of a, of a, of a computer, um, except that you know these machines were not purpose-built for anything like this. But it works, and they sell 700 of them to the aircraft industry. Uh, and that's an enormously larger number than any contemporary real computers. One thing that's really interesting about this is that IBM doesn't basically have this idea. One of its customers, Northrop, does. Northrop is an aircraft maker. They have these horrible aircraft problems, the same things that motivated Zeus. Um, and Northrop builds the first one of these, but it's kind of clumsy. And they go back to IBM and say, you know, you have such ability in this technology. Build me one that really, really works. And IBM says, sure, and I'm going to sell it to all your competitors, too. And Northrop doesn't mind, because they are what economists would call imperfect competitors. You give Northrop a leg up, you give all its rivals a leg up. Northrop would rather its rivals didn't have a leg up. But when they think about it in the cold light of business decisions, they'll take that deal. And since the R&D can be spread over Northrop and all its competitors, then IBM has a big budget to do this thing right, which Northrop could never do internally. And that's user innovation, and it's a very modern open source model, right? There are, in the commercial open source world, this kind of thing happens all the time today. This is not a new technology. There's a suspicion here that this is part of the DNA of this subject, that, that this kind of user innovation is generic to information technologies. Um, but it's one of the ways that the open source miracle happens in the 90s and, and the early years of the 21st century. Corporations do it now, but they were doing it in the late 40s, too. I have a co-author who's written a formal paper about how this works, so I cheerfully pointed out to him the other day, and this also goes back to the 40s, it's not new. People always like to hear that. 
So, so far I've just talked about development, but eventually they start selling these things. And the famous one for this era is the UNIVAC, Universal Automatic Computer. Universal because it doesn't make pretense that, oh, I'm a science machine or, oh, I'm a business machine. It's universal. Automatic because it has these programs. You don't have to intervene and tell it what to do next. And computer because they're not IBM and they don't <coughs> mind using the word. For a long time, IBM gets really upset because computer is associated with Univax, and that's another reason to avoid using the word. Uh, it uses steel tape, so it's a little slow, and internally it has one of these delay line memories originally, one of these mercury-filled columns. They cost a million bucks a piece. At first, they use a standard electric typewriter as output, but they build a dedicated thing for it in 1954. This is what it looked like. First sale actually goes through the Census Bureau in 1951. And in 1952, the thing predicts the Eisenhower election way before the humans do, which is one of the great myths of the uh, computer age. This was like a seminal event. Oh my god, the electronic brain, as they used to say in those days, predicts this before all the wise men do. This is so wonderful. Those of you of a certain age will recognize this as Walter Cronkite. Um, what's really cool about this is at the time, they only had one univac, and this wasn't it. Um, but they knew that people knew that computers had blinking lights, so they made a mock-up, and it didn't actually do anything, but Walter Cronkite could sit next to it, and they used Christmas tree lights for the requisite blinking lights that showed that it was thinking. <laughs> Univac starts delivering these things in small volume, but volume in 1954, what a sigh of relief. You can get a commercial company to buy one. General Electric buys one, then DuPont, then U.S. Steel, then the Air Force again. This is beginning to look like they've proven their point, that they're actually, you can sell these things to commercial firms. That was in doubt before. They cost a million dollars each, but the problem is that they're basically hand-built objects, and so they're unable to fill their order book. The, they could have sold more than these 20, but... They can't put them together fast enough. They have all kinds of engineering and manufacturing problems. IBM, we'll get to this, has a rival product we'll get to in a little bit called the 701. They managed to sell 19 of them in the same period. Um, and, of course, they sell hundreds of these CPC, almost, computers and thousands of their traditional punch card machines. So, you know, it's not like the whole world was watching this segment of the market. It's very important to us. But if you were a contemporary hard-headed businessman, you would probably be asking, why would I want this expensive way to solve this problem I already know how to fix? Um, I just like the quote. Uh, the chief actuary of Metropolitan Life Insurance Company still has to be reassured that this technology isn't going to make him completely miserable. And he says, perhaps the most radical idea which a business is being asked to accept is the idea that a reel of tape can safely be used to carry information now being entrusted to visual card files. That sounds sort of stupid to us. Hindsight is golden, of course. But I would point out for the record that NASA cleverly put all their Viking imagery in the 1970s and 80s on tapes and allowed them to rot so that they lost 20 or 30 percent of these millions and millions of bytes of data. Uh, this guy was not so dumb, right? It's important to put yourself back in their shoes. Okay. So the Univac there's, thinks there's a, This is Ed again. There's a story by a Butler Lamson who will talk to us later in the class who for a brief year after grad school was working for uh, uh, an aerospace company or the military or something and was writing software and this aircraft that they were building the hardware and software for had precise weight requirements and 
everybody who was doing anything for the plane had a quota of, uh, of weight that they could contribute to the plane. And they kept insisting that the software weighed nothing. And there was some little worm who kept auditing them, trying to find it. And one weekend, he came in and he found all these punched cards. They were using punched cards instead of tape and discovered that this was the software, that in fact it weighed six pounds and they'd been lying to him all along. Lamson then explained that the actual software was in the holes in the cards and that shot uh, <laughs> <got> him off. <laughs> Perfect. So UNIVAC has this thing that's technically ahead of the competitors and the world is excited about it and they talk about Walter Cronkite um, and their idea is that this is technically superior and we'll give you a good price on it. They never really get the price down. It's about the same as IBM. Uh, it probably is a better technology for a while, but not noticeably bigger. And the offsetting problems are the ones you'd expect. Uh, they have a tiny sales force. Uh, they don't know how to support the equipment because they haven't invested much money in teaching their engineering staff how to do that. And, you know, without the sales force, this sounds like we're fooling people whenever you say sales, but it, there's information in that, right? IBM was really good at showing the customer, not just persuading him, but demonstrating that, you know, if you buy this new technology, you won't be sorry. And these guys don't do much on that. It's basically a very engineering-driven company, and that would be fine, except that the innovation here is at least as much social as technical, and they underinvest in that. Um, and as I say, they, they perpetually are, they never freeze the design, uh, and it discombobulates the rest of the organization. There is this other division at Remington Rand. One of the odd things is that Remington Rand takes over both Eckert Mockley and, and uh, ERA, uh, and unfortunately, they never actually make them part of the company. These guys continue to be more or less what they were before uh, as just a division, but a semi-autonomous division. So they're actually building computers in competition with each other. Anyway, ERA builds this civilian version of the thing it had built for the, for the NSA. It builds 20 of them and has basically the same problems. What's IBM doing in the meanwhile? Well, they had these two computer projects, but in 1950, the Chinese in, uh, invade Korea, and, um, and IBM does what it always does in a war. It salutes and asks the Pentagon, what would you like me to do? They say, you're already building a computer for Princeton, an academic computer. Please make that a commercial product. That's the best thing you can do for the war effort. IBM, which is not terribly constrained by market forces, can do that. And so it does. And it drops everything and works on something called the defense calculator, which has a magnetic drum memory, uh, mylar tape for external memory. That's already a big thing that they had learned to do by the end of the 40s, and punch cards. And they make 19 of these things. This is what it looks like. And they improve it over time. So in 1954, when the UNIVAC is beginning to make sales, they come out with a better version of this thing. Uh, and eventually, you know, one of the tricks in electronics is that you can replace vacuum tubes with transistors and the thing works pretty well. Once you have designed it for one, you can design it for the other. It may not be optimum, but it's good. And they do this trick eventually of building an all-transistor version because remember Bell Labs had come up with the transistor in 47 and IBM is working really, really hard to figure out how to make transistors in-house. Eventually it becomes the biggest manufacturer of transistors in the world at that time. Something kind of cool is happening here. This whole family has compatible software. What they're learning at this point is that software can be as expensive as the hardware. This is a hard lesson for engineers in that era, very disappointing. Oh my God, we have to spend all this money on software. 
um, and the customer's ability to go from one machine to the next without writing all new software is becoming important. That's obviously a feature we live with for the rest of time. Question? Sir. Um, what's, I don't know if there is any reasoning to it, but how does IBM come up with the numbers that they assign to these products? More research is needed. I'd say that that's a term paper problem, but it's probably too hard. Uh, it makes no sense at all, and in fact, I think one thing that they are doing is they, these are actually being designed in this era by different units within IBM. And I think they consciously interleave the numbers to make it more, look more unified than it is, as if there's some organic connection between these machines, when they're actually being made by separate labs within IBM uh, jockeying for the company's favor and resources. So I, it is an in incredible, confusing mess. When you read Ceruzzi and you read all these numbers back and forth, you've got to take notes. You can't follow the players without a scorecard. It's a mess. Um, the, remember that in 1948, IBM had tried something called a tape processing machine. When they get done with the, uh, with the uh, computer, uh, the defense computer, they start, they finally get this thing out the pipeline after uh, five long years. Basically, it wasn't a priority item, partly because it was behind the Korean War uh, rush, but also because when IBM costed these things out, it could never find a market in the late 40s, early 50s that would justify the cost. So these were very stretched out programs. But when it arrives, arrives it has this very fast cathode ray memory, which means that although architecturally it's kind of a clumsy machine, uh, when you add in the fact that it has this very fast internal memory, it's competitive with UNIVAC in terms of performance. So it arrives just in time to go into head-to-head -head competition with UNIVAC. And the improved version of this, I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit, has magnetic core memory. Uh, and that does this miracle for IBM computers that it had previously done for the whirlwind when it became twice as good a machine because the magnetic memory was so fast. Uh, and as Ed points out, it, you don't have to do it in a particular order. So what is IBM doing for R&D in this, in this period? Everyone knows that the transistor is the next big thing. They beat on making transistors, learning how to make them cost effectively. Early transistors, by the way, are really unreliable. Vacuum tubes begin to look robust. You sort of shuffle your feet on the carpet and get within five feet of the computer, and all the transistors blow out. So there's a, they're a great idea. They're small. They're fast. Um, they work just like vacuum tubes in terms of the logic operations needed to do binary arithmetic, but they take a lot of coaxing, and IBM pours a lot of resources into making that happen before it has all transistor computers in the late 50s. And the other thing they do is they push on this disk idea, and most of you have heard this, but the challenge is that you need to have a, a read-write head within, you know, millionths of an inch of this violently rotating disk so that it can read data really quickly, right? Because how fast the disk rotates is how fast you can read data. And these disks are thin things, so they're not real rigid. And how do you keep the disk head, from, the head from crashing into the disk? And IBM comes up with this thing that almost perfectly works, where the disk head flies aerodynamically over the boundary layer error in the disk. And that's easy to say, but you can imagine the years of trial and error before you can do that trick in real life as opposed to in theory. So that's another big push by IBM's R&D effort. Um, and as I say, people begin to discover about software. Um, and 
customers worry about, you know, on the one hand, what happens is that if I have IBM machines, um, I don't, when I buy a new machine, I don't want to buy all new software too. So having the same software is a good thing. But even in the 50s, IBM users start realizing that we're writing most of the code, IBM isn't, and we should share it. Right? Quick question. Yeah. Um, so you were mentioning this customer lock-in, but even if you have IBM computers, um, at this point still, is there compatibility between the IBM computers? Are you, even if you stay with IBM, do you still have to rewrite at, the software? At first, it's the improved computers. And in the late 50s, well, we'll come to it, there is a family of computers which aren't just simple improvements where IBM does make it uh, compatible within that family. What it does not do until the 60s, this is getting ahead of the story, but until the 60s, it does not do it across the entire IBM family. So there's a sense in which IBM is acting like several independent computer companies, each of which is actually a division within IBM, and they don't much talk to each other. Uh, the, the vision of making all the IBM machines compatible is the culmination of this, but they're beginning to get the idea in the middle 50s. And the point I'd like to make for you, because this is a hobby horse of mine, Ed's heard it already, um, is that this idea of customers sharing code doesn't sort of require the invention of the GPL license, right? It makes sense already on its own terms, just standing around at a conference, no fancy legal forms. I think that's a heavy code, clue that if you want to understand open source, you need to start by looking at the nature of software and the economics underlying the transaction. And the verbiage that comes along afterwards may sometimes be essential, but the behavior of something that looks very like open source is, again, hardwired into the emerging electronics industry at a very early date. As soon as, um, as soon as the software becomes a major expense, people want to share it across all the users of IBM computers because no one person can afford to write that code entirely for himself. These transactions become very natural. Um, Steve, actually, this is Ed, just, just a comment. In addition to share, which was essentially an IBM underwritten user group okay, for exchange, and share had big conferences several times a year and stuff like that, IBM also had this thing they called the Contributed Program Library. And the Contributed Program Library even included operating systems. So for example, in 1970, a couple decades after this, CP67, which was the successful time-sharing operating system for their virtual memory machines, was a contributed program. It wasn't IBM-supported. OK. Another quick question from San Diego. That's good. Um, so. Your question about this uh, software sharing, um, and you were talking about you know, the GPL and you know, various licenses, um, did copyright apply to software here? Were people still figuring out what protection there was? All right, so this is where you can get angry at me. Uh, in 1982, uh, there was no case that said that software was copyrightable, and one could find learned um, treatises that argued both ways about whether software was copyrightable. For all the good public policy kinds of reasons that lawyers always use, oh, it's like writing a novel. Oh, it's not like writing a novel at all. I mean, why should policy turn on whether software writing feels like writing a novel? But that's what all these treatises said. And the reason you can be angry at me is my very first job, first case I worked on as a young lawyer, was the case that first held that software is copyrightable. So it ain't that long ago. And there were actually old cases that, that said that it, the algorithms are not copyrightable. You can't, 
copyright the cookbook kind of thing. I was just so curious. Let me let me put a different spin on this, right? Which is less that confessional. It, no, it's that into the 1980s, nobody thought software had value. I, IBM leased you the machine. They didn't sell the software. The software was part of getting you to procure their hardware. And in some sense, you know, Gates's letter to the uh, Homebrew Computer Club or whatever it was in the late 1970s, arguing that you ought to pay for software, was uh, re really re revolutionary. So these these folks were in the business of selling iron. And they actually, you know, they actually came from a world which I think is very sensible. It's we who look weird, right? I mean, you go down to the store and I'd like me a printer now. I don't actually want a printer. I want what they wanted in the 50s, which is give me an accounting solution. Right? I mean, it's we who have become very strange that we can imagine that I have a desire for a printer. I don't. I want a word processing solution. And IBM, you know, they could price this or that or the other, but what the customer wanted, they realized, was the solution. And they, they very much sold themselves in that mode. But right. Uh, the other thing is that software just keeps getting to be a bigger and bigger problem. And Fortran, IBM creates Fortran, and this me opens the world of programming to the unwashed, suddenly lots of people can program, and this puts more strain on IBM machines because now, you know, I'd like to be able to do time sharing so I don't have to wait a week between iterations of my software to find the bugs. And sort of contemporary code warriors would sniff and say, look, you should write it right the first time, but that's a losing argument in the long run, particularly as code gets bigger. IBM actually, uh, it's not clear which way the arrow runs with this, um, shares package of programs eventually gets cobbled together as IBM's first operating system. So IBM is de deriving real benefit from its users, just as it did with the uh, card pro program things from Northrop in the 40s. It's just users know their needs. They're often technically astute. Um, in this industry, it's not IBM delivers technology to users and never vice versa. That's, again, something that's hardwired into this subject. Um, so let's think a little bit about the policy lessons from the middle 60s, middle 50s. First of all, um, Ahn Wang came up with this wonderful new memory. Um, does that serve any social purpose when he licenses it to IBM? Well, he gets a share of IBM's profits. If you believe that IBM should have a really big war chest to support their R&D effort, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Um, the more subtle problem, which is pointed out a lot in contemporary computer science circles, is that, you know, patents work well in theory, but you have to have transactions associated with them. And in the middle 50s, um, there are a series of conversations with Watson Jr. about, well, IBM needs this technology and it's patented and can we get it? And the first time it's with Wang and Watson looks at his interrogator and says, don't be an idiot. Wang wants to make money. Of course he's going to license it to us. And that sounds good. The second time he meets an uh, uh, inventor who's less famous who has an improvement on the Wang patent, and that guy doesn't sell, Watson says, to heck with this, we'll invent around it, and that works. And the third time he comes into the other godfather of core memory, Jay Forrester, and Forrester's apparently completely unreasonable demands a huge royalty, and that drags on for years. So doing things in patent mode has this overhead quality that sometimes you can't make the rational transactions actually happen. Economists never believe this. Lawyers always do. We have a lot of balky clients. Um, and so, you know, throwing patents in the mix is not costless. And the experience in the 50s shows that sometimes they're a drag on the system. 
So um, there is this wonderful. Sorry. So you mentioned uh, Watson, uh, you know, needing three individual patents, and one of the inventors didn't uh, wish to share that with IBM. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, I'm curious as for why someone would invent technology and kind of keep it to themselves. So bless you. I want to do business with you, right? The, the, this is actually a, a deep, deep subject in the literature right now, something called the anti-commons. And the idea is that if I give enough property rights, if I give out 100 property rights, all of which are essential to a particular technology, it's hopeless. And the reason is, there are various reasons that are not terribly satisfying in this literature, but the intuitive reason is because one of the 100 people will be an idiot. And you normally don't want to believe that because it's not terribly realistic in any way. It's no way to think as a social scientist. It's what do I say after I assume somebody's going to do some idiotic thing. Um, but in real life, when you get up to 100 or so patents, you begin to have the uncomfortable feeling that maybe somebody will do something irrational, even though you have said succinctly and well the economist's argument for why these deals should always go through. In real life, there's a kind of stickiness connected with uh, the fact that you eventually meet someone who doesn't know how to exploit his patents. I think that's a much bigger problem, frankly, when you have universities and faculty holding patents, partly because they don't have experience that a commercial firm understands, if I don't sell this thing, what am I going to do? Frame it and hang it on the wall? Uh, but also because universities are often more worried about shame that I will let this thing out and it will make somebody else a pot of money. And the way to never be ashamed is never to sign the agreement, right? Um, so there is an issue there, but I agree with you. You know, the job of a good lawyer is to shout at these people perpetually and saying you're cutting off your nose despite your face. A patent is no good if you never sell it. Nevertheless, there were people in these negotiations with IBM that asked for these enormous royalties, and IBM wasn't going to do that. And that's, that's, you know, that's the way the story runs. But this is actually sort of at the frontier of what we know. There are papers back and forth coming out constantly about whether this phenomenon exists and how important it is. So I had the coolest anecdote in the history of the subject about IBM. But other than that, this is still an open field. OK. Uh, so I guess the last segment I want to talk about before the break is that we've talked about this world of sort of small, primitive computers. And the big thing that comes along is the military has a giant program to build air defense computers. And the first one we've mentioned is this Whirlwind project. That's sort of a testbed computer. But Whirlwind 2 and Sage has a $500 million contract to build computers for the Air Force to handle air defense. And there's the usual bragging about the, each of these things is two computers back to back so you can have reliability. They weigh 275 tons, 50,000 vacuum tubes, three megawatts of power. That's enough for a village of 15,000 people. And they have this insatiable appetite for programmers. For a while, the, the world is frantically making programmers for Whirlwind because there aren't enough people who can do this otherwise. Uh, 500,000 lines of code, that's respectable for Windows until the middle 80s at least. Um, and all sorts of advances. Magnetic core memory is the big one. These things, you have to learn how to make this stuff cheaply and in bulk. Um, it has a real-time operating system. You can interact with the computer. Never did that before. Functions overlap within the computer. Phone lines. The modem is invented because this thing has to communicate with all the other computers over phone lines. Cathode ray tube displays with light pens. So you've got something like the mouse already. And they have to have this exquisite reliability. This toilet paper shaped object is the famous light pen. 
This is what it looks like. I believe Ed called it big iron. I can't think of a better word. <laughs> and IBM knows before the bid comes out that whoever gets this is going to be the kingpin. Let's not be too subtle. If you get a project that's bigger than the Manhattan Project, and this was the project to make the atomic bomb, it's bigger than that. It's the biggest American military project ever to that time. Um, and you get that contract, you're going to just be enormously more experienced in building computers than anybody else. And it doesn't matter who built those 20-odd univacs. This is where the, the center of gravity is. And the government expresses concerns. This is like, you know, IBM has never done work for the government. Maybe they're too secretive. IBM is clever enough to realize it's a new world. They take the government on a tour of all their facilities, show them all the secrets, and most importantly show how incredibly capable their manufacturing arm is. Uh, and this is the review that comes from the guy who's running the project. And he says they have purposefulness, integration, and esprit de corps, particularly compared to Remington Rand. Also, considerable interest to us is the evidence of much closer ties between research factory and field maintenance. This is what's wrong with Remington Rand. Um, IBM, you know, from the ground up, have great understanding of delivering service to customers. And when they say they do it, they really can. What happens from this? Well, they learn how to make core memory, which is the big technology for the next generation of computers, makes all their stuff better. They teach 7,000 employees how to make the stuff, and they have spin-off pro projects. Sabre, which runs the airline reservation system, $300 million over 10 years following uh, SAGE, and air traffic control systems for the US. Other benefits, well, to build this thing, the government creates something at Cambridge called Lincoln Lab. Eventually, DEC spins off of that. Very interesting story. They find themselves a primitive venture capital firm. You get the idea that finally people are learning how to fund these organizations. They're having enough expertise in-house that they can make intelligent loans. That's eroding sort of the traditional information asymmetry, which made IBM dominant. Uh, Spin-off of Lincoln Lab, they have a problem that's too dull for the, the, the top people at Lincoln Lab involving how do you include fighter planes and missiles in this mix. And they, they spin off something called MITRE Corporation, which is a big R&D outfit today. And of course, in a general way, this is the start of Route 128, the Silicon Valley ring around Boston. Um, every university licensing office in the country would like you to believe that we know exactly all the steps that led from uh, whirlwind and sage to this uh, economic powerhouse at Route 128. And in fact, we have experts on this campus who know a great deal about it, but I don't think any of them would claim that they know it in the sense that they can do the trick a second time. So it's a little bit mysterious, but it gives you this idea that, gee, big government investments can lead to this permanent value um, for a society. Maybe we can cold-bloodedly build a Silicon Valley if we really put our minds to it. Um, and finally, there's uh, more antitrust problems, right? IBM is always dominant, so they're always one hair's breadth away from arguing with the government about antitrust. In the 30s, you'll remember, there was uh, an agreement between IBM and Remington Rand that it was immoral for anybody to actually sell machines. You should always lease them. Uh, now in the 50s, there's a much bigger suit that accuses IBM of predatory pricing, that is undercutting rivals, selling goods below cost to drive rivals out of business. 
uh, selling cards that have this incompatible standard so that Remington Rand users can't use their machines with IBM machines, buying up patents, uh, using leases to make it harder for other firms to get into the business, using leases that have terms that say you can't take apart the machine for research. Um, that's, that's a no-no. We're protecting our trade secrets. Um, and offering contracts to every inventor in this business in sight. IBM tried to hire Eckerd and Mockley. Eventually they tried to buy their company, except that it was clear that on antitrust grounds that was a deal that wasn't going to go through. So they're Can buying I up rivals. comment, Steve, again? Please, it's good. It's a reverse engineering comment. I want to point out that this is what UCEDA would have done for software, and Microsoft was a huge proponent of UCEDA. That is, no, no reverse engineering. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, there's a sort of shadow land in patent law. Everybody from sort of oil drilling equipment operators to every, loves to lease stuff because there's this shadowy sense in which it's legal to control what people do with leased equipment, but once they own it, there are a bunch of medieval laws that say you can do anything you want with it once you own it. What's the difference between lease and owning, really? I can, I can offer you a package that's one or the other. Uh, this is one of those horrible places where the way I structure the transaction on paper ends up having consequences in life. That should never be happening in a policy setting. Um, okay, so what happens? Uh, eventually they settle. Watson wants the DOJ off their back, so what he agrees to do is he will cross-license with any other firm that wants to license its portfolio to IBM. IBM gives up a large part of its patent advantage. Uh, it agrees to open up the card market to help other people get into the card business. Remember, up until now, only IBM had the secret sauce to make good cards. Um, and it agrees to help aftermarkets, to help other firms learn how to repair uh, IBM equipment, sell secondhand IBM equipment, and service IBM equipment in competition with IBM. Um, so what do we think about policy? This is the last slide or so before the break. Um, the interesting thing here is that there is always, almost always, a tension between the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense likes having companies that when you tell them to do something, they salute. That means those are companies that are insulated from the market. DOD wants to get things done. Uh, DOJ is always much more interested in fostering competition. There's a tension there. Um, you could imagine a counterfactual world, I think it borders on science fiction, in which Remington Rand had won the, the contract, right? And this would have looked like the story with Hollerith and Powers about 1910. If Remington Rand had got a $500 million contract to produce Whirlwind II computers, uh, wow, that would have been a really big fight for IBM to, become, to, to hold on to its lead in the information processing industry. That didn't happen, and I have to say in this case, you know, it's really easy to sit up in the cheap seats and blame the, the Department of Defense for not pushing good outcomes for competition policy. But look, let's get real. IBM had three million installed vacuum tubes. They were making this stuff hand over fist, and Remington Rand had 20 hand-built machines in two divisions which wouldn't talk to each other, all right? Um, at this point, it becomes, you know, as a taxpayer, I would be more upset if the Department of Defense hadn't done this. I mean, it's just clear that IBM could build this, and how could you be sure that anyone else can? I think that's thoroughly reasonable, but there is this sort of what-if question that if you would use this contract to foster competition, it might have been a different industry, at least for a while. And with that, I'd like to take a quick break, and then I'd like you to come back pretty quickly, like in five minutes, 8.10, uh, so that we can 
go on because we have two, two more shows after this one uh, that we want to get to. All right, see you in 10 or 5. So we've got up to the middle 50s, and remember that in Thomas Watson's personal mythology, 1954 is this crucial year when there are univacs out there and people think that electronic computing is a Remington Rand product and not IBM, and he, is, he gets older, tells stories about how he saved the company, and these fools didn't listen to me until the last moment. But 1954 is the big year. After 54, IBM begins to pull ahead, at first slowly, but quite definitely. And by the end of the period we're talking about, 1970, they have a locked-in dominance which lasts for the better part of, you know, a couple decades. Um, so 1954 is the crucial year, and we pick up the history at that point. Um, so these univacs are beginning to be shipped. There are not a lot of them, but they're going to regular customers. And just in the nick of time, this long-delayed IBM drum calculator project that was started in the late 40s actually hits the market, and it works about as well as the univacs. And it's designed, actually, as a scientific computer, but what people discover, what they always discover in this time period, is you can also use it for business. And in fact, John Hancock Insurance Company gets the first one, and they built 1,800 of these, and it's the dynamite bestsellers, like the Model T of the mainframe computer world. Um, this is the most popular computer of the 1950s. So IBM has a really solid product now, and it begins to pull away from its rivals, just as Watson would tell you in the nick of time. How much, one of, how much was one of those computers? I'd have to check me. Um, I think it's at the Univac price of a million, but if you send me a note on the wiki, I'll try and find that. Another question from San Diego? Yeah, please. Can you give us a sense of what kind of workload this thing could actually uh, perform? What, what was its real value and what was the throughput? The computing power. Yeah. Um, so you guys know the metrics for that a lot better than I do. What I would suggest is the following. Posted on the site is a 1955 report, Consumer's Digest by the government, I think, that compares all of these things in, in enormous technical detail. And I think that's something for the wiki page to actually look at that in the UNIVAC and make some judgments about what you would have thought at that time. But I can't do it off the cuff. I'm taking these guys' word for it. They're roughly comparable. <coughs> One more question. Please. Was the Whirlwind uh, successful? Whirlwind project? Was it a smash? Yeah, it was success? wildly successful. So they build this thing and it works. Of course, the only way you can be sure it works is to have a nuclear war, but they're still <laughs> running these things in 1981. Um, so, yeah, it works the, 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 in any kind of metric about downtime or, um, you know, that it does the mission and simulation and all that works beautifully. It's a big triumph, and partly because IBM really does follow through and has this, this uh, it's able to build this uh, core memory technology and a whole suite of other technologies, and it all comes in sort of on time and under budget. They, they, it's a triumph. They do very well. Okay, so the, there is an improved version of the Defense Department calculator. It comes out about this time, 
and it's using all transistors now. So you're already seeing a payoff from IBM's investment in how to do transistors. Remember, at this point, a transistor is a little thing in a steel can with legs coming out of it. You have to assemble them by hand. And what all the computer companies are pushing on is how many of these little items you can get into uh, a space. Miniaturization in that day means soldering lots of these things together. And they're getting to the place by the late 50s where you can put 10 items in a cubic inch. And in that sort of patronizing way that males have, they announced that this is a job that must be done by women because men would go insane. Notice that this takes something that women can do that men can't do and makes the inability to do that thing a virtue. I mean, it's just so smooth from a rhetorical standpoint that I just have to admire it as the way I admire all sufficiently evil things. Okay. So anyway, that's another thing that's hitting in 1954. The, the, What's happening here is that IBM's long-delayed investment in all these research strategies is coming through, and Thomas Watson would point out, in the nick of time. And in 1956, the DISC project finally becomes a commercial product, and it has something called Random Access Memory Accounting Machine. And random access in this case means what Ed said the other, uh, you know, an hour or so ago, that you can get data in any order you want, more or less. You don't have to start at one end of the tape and patiently spool through until you get to the data that, that uh, is physically at that location on the tape. You can go get data from here and from here and from here. The disk drive is just a tremendous thing. And um, the first one, I actually do know something about this, uh, has 50... Oh, I will regret that. Uh, has 50 disks, and it can store 50 million characters. And they have one of these numinous moments in the history of technology where they open up at the Brussels World Fair, ask Professor Ramak, and you can ask questions in an, in an interactive way with the computer. And the way, reason that works is because you have this random access, and everybody's agog that you don't have to wait for Professor Ramak to spool through the whole tape again to find the thing that he wants. He can answer you immediately uh, because it's an advance in computing made very hey, visible. This is what one looks like, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, it's Ed again. I just want to come back to that performance question somebody asked. I, I went back to that wonderful consumer's report. And, uh -huh. of course, this doesn't say anything about aggregate system performance, but um, it, it gives lots of numbers. And if you look at the IBM 604, 608, and 704, the add times in microseconds were 500, 220, and 72. So in terms of additions per second, it's 2,000, 5,000, and 10,000 additions per second. So these They're were, getting good at this. You know, so these were, uh, you know, f faster than uh, a uh, mechanical calculator, but... <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be crazy to, to think that a mechanical calculator was cheaper. Is that what I get from your comment? <laughs> no, no. I mean, just point out they were fast, but not by today's standards. That's all. Exactly. It was still good, but you could do without it. Just so people know, that was like a five meg hard drive. Yeah. Okay. So 1957 comes along, and IBM decides that it's not going to make stuff with tubes anymore in the card punch machines or anything else. Why does it do that? This is a, a fiat that comes from on top, because IBM is the biggest market for vacuum tubes and computing in the world. And if it wants to encourage use of solid state within IBM, if it's going to develop its own manufacturing capability, it expects that the more of these it sells to itself, 
the cheaper the price will be, right? It can, it can get economies of scale. And so it declares, Watson declares, from now on, nobody gets to make something that has vacuum tubes in the design. We're going to solid state. That's something that only a big player can do. It sees the market for the stuff it's manufacturing, and it's itself. It controls that market. That's an inherent advantage. It's an economy of scale. Okay. Um, somebody asked about this a while ago, but this is the first series of computers that uh, continues to have uh, interoperable software. Everything in this computer line, they preserve the software for every time you buy a more advanced version of the same family. And notice that the last computer I showed you, the one I called the Model T of the software age, sold about 1,000 copies. Late 50s, early 60s, they're selling 10,000 of these. So the computer age is beginning to ramp up in a serious way. And it has the suite of things that IBM has been working on for, for low the last decade. Ferrite core memory, magnetic disk, and a high-speed printer. It's not just you know a Remington Rand typewriter connected to this. This thing is really fast, and it looks good. Now, you begin to see the emergence of the industry. Um, the joke for years was IBM and the Seven Dwarfs. This dates from the late 50s. Who are the other competitors? Well, there's National Cash Register. Uh, it, all, it says, well, I've been in the office machine business for years. I should be in the computer machine business, too. It buys a spin-off spin of a bunch of Northrop engineers. Northrop loves computers. They're the ones who had this cart punch calculator. And they service the area that NCR has always surfaced, serviced, banking and retail. They, they don't really try to go outside their traditional niche, but they serve that. Honeywell buys a computer company. They're a systems control. They've been doing electronic controls for years. They think, well, a computer is just like that technology. We should get into this. They buy a computer company to get into the business, and they market a big vacuum tube machine. Wrong technology a little late, but by the middle 60s, they have a more advanced product, and they're there in the market to stay. Uh, Burroughs gets a bunch of alumni from JPL who had a computer company, and it builds specialty stuff mostly for the military, a niche market. They're not going head-to-head -head with IBM. And Control Data uh, is a spin-off of Univac. Just about everybody who works for Univac seems to be unhappy. There are a lot of spin-off companies, uh, and they get into the business of uh, very sophisticated computers for, for users who know what they're buying. Um, Sperry merges with Remington Rand in 1955. They bring out the Univac II. Um, it has transistors in it. It has magnetic memory. It has film-based tape. It's a good machine, but it's a little late. And anyway, it's not demonstrably better than IBM, which is pretty much what Sperry would need if they wanted to take the lead in this market. A little bit better isn't going to do you. And the two really interesting ones, there are three actually, we'll get to the other one in a minute, are RCA and GE. Because what we forget about IBM is that IBM isn't all that big by Fortune 500 standards in the 1950s. So if this game is about who has the money to develop the next generation of computers, if that's what's going to drive this Schumpeterian competition, um, well, somebody with deep pockets can potentially come in and displace IBM. These are the guys that IBM worries about. So RCA has been building electronic control kind of stuff for years. It introduces a computer in 55. Uh, it's a little antiquated again. It has vacuum tubes. It's already getting kind of late for that. But they stay in the market through the 60s. And General Electric 
um, has always been selling components to IBM and has actually been building computers for some of IBM's rivals. Uh, it dabbles in computers. It builds a computer for the Air Force in 1953. Um, and it actually plays at the edges of building specialized computers into the 60s. But it never gets in in a big way. And AT&T, the real giant in the room, right, um, has an antitrust prohibition against getting into the computer business after 1953. The Justice Department figures AT&T is the 800-pound gorilla, and the best they can do is put a big fence around it, so they agree with AT&T at the end of this um, uh, antitrust suit that AT&T will stick to telephony and woe to all the people who try to compete with AT&T and telephony, you're in the room with an 800-pound gorilla, but at least it won't shove around the, the rest of the economy. And ironically, that both protects IBM and gives a royalty-free license on the transistor. Uh, question for you, Dad? Please. So you, you covered this uh, in the previous slides, and the, the book also covers this, the, the era where you know, we had this trend of startup companies being bought by established companies, which kind of rings a little bit like the dot-com era. But how was kind of the perception in that time? Were these big companies who were buying these small startups kind of feeling that they're going to miss the boat if they don't jump on the bandwagon? Yeah, no, it has that quality because if you look at who's the closest to this, right? It's Remington Rand. They almost pull off the hat trick in 54 when they're way out ahead with the UNIVAC. And the public certainly believes they're way ahead, right? Um, they didn't have any expertise in this business. What they did was they were an office machine company and they wanted to get in the business, but they couldn't, they didn't have the, in, the best way to gain that expertise was simply to buy it from the outside. And their mistake, if there was one, you know, maybe IBM would have won anyway. I mean, with, with Whirlwind, it sure looks like it. But their mistake, if there was one, was that they left these people as sort of independent divisions. But there was a sense that this is in my business, but it's computers, and I don't know from computers, and there's this startup company with smart guys, and maybe if I put my marketing together with their technology, um, you know, we'll make music together. So I think it's very much like the startup business, and I have no particular, um, well, I do. Uh, Mockley and Eckert clearly thought they were going to become a giant computer company and, and beat IBM to the market, and that would be the end of it. That's not a startup business plan, but it's pretty clear after their financing falls through, gosh, we could, get a, we could sell this startup to somebody and make a mint is at the front of their minds, and I think it's at the front of everybody's minds in these startups. So I think they understood that, you know, we may not actually beat IBM to the market, but if we build a good product, the least that will happen is we'll sell it to somebody like NCR who's in this business. I think that's a reasonable speculation historically. Okay. Uh, question, question please. Have, why didn't uh, RCA or GE just buy IBM outright? Antitrust, probably. Um, I mean, I don't know what IBM's opinion would have been, but, but antitrust, probably. Um, IBM doesn't buy Eckert Mockley, after all, because it believes the Department of Justice won't let that deal go through. Um, and after all, DOJ isn't interested in approving a transaction that replaces one monopolist with another. They'd love to have RCA come in and compete with IBM, but they're not going to—they're going to look very differently at a merger. I, I think that's the environment. Antitrust and the threat of Department of Justice action is basically in the background of this business all the way forward to the present. Um, 
the players believe they can't do certain things, and that constrains their market behavior. Let me finish the talk. We can pick this up. So in the late 50s, the other big event in our time period happens, and it only starts to have fruit after 1970, but the integrated circuit is invented. And you can put now on a single piece of silicon with lithography, like printing a book, a miniature circuit already made, and now it's like I can make these circuits, which I had to do with soldering guns in the old days. I have by hand each item at a time. I can make it once, get the wiring right, and then just run off copies of this. That's an enormous event that changes the economics of computing forever. And in particular, in the early 50s, there was something called Grosch's Law, which said that the bigger you made the computer, the less it cost per unit computing power. And that tells you that you should build one large computer for the entire planet. And in fact, people like to laugh that people like von Neumann and this National Academy panel in the 40s had said that the world would end up with three or four computers. That wasn't so crazy until you could run these things off and get economies on the second product being essentially free to make. You know, if you make one computer and the second computer involves all those soldering guns and 500 miles of wiring, and it's, you know, you're not gaining anything in building the second copy. Just make the first computer bigger. But once you can run off the second copy of the computer at essentially zero cost, the economics is profound. And everything that follows from this talk, you know, the period after 1970, the personal computer revolution, is largely driven by that. And there's army money originally behind this. They had an open-ended contest to make the smallest computer you could make, densest wiring. This is what they look like. Most of you will have seen it. Look at the complexity, though. It's amazing to have human teams that can make a perfect object like that, right? There used to be these stories about rug weavers would put an intentional defect in the rug so God wouldn't be jealous, all right? This is miles beyond that, to build a group of human beings who collectively invest many more years than are in a human lifetime to make an object that is perfect and that complex and detailed. That is a social transformation, not a technological one. What do we learn from this period? Well, we've already talked about why IBM has a big advantage in R&D. I showed you the other day that companies with big market share get more benefits back from R&D, and we have this argument about internal financing that big companies have more money to spend. The net of that is that IBM can kind of turn a fire hose on whatever problem it thinks is important. Now, it makes mistakes. When it turns its fire hose on the defense calculator, it makes the race with UNIVAC closer than it otherwise would have been, but in general, it guesses right. And some of the things that it guesses about are ferrite core memory, disks, transistors, integrated circuits, random access memory, and high-speed printout units, a whole suite of technologies that are the things needed to turn these laboratory curiosities into working commercial machines. But notice this. Almost all these ideas, as ideas, did not originate at IBM. What IBM did have was the resources and the will to push these things through to where they actually worked. There's no lesser quality in that, right? This is a 10-year effort. It's heroic. And when it happens, that's real value. There's no sense in which the guy who had the idea is somehow superior to the guy who actually makes it work. I need both those things. But IBM is not necessarily an innovator in the sense of having this gotcha idea, 
but they are the one person in the industry who can create not just one technology to make commercial computers happen, but the whole suite of things that had to happen simultaneously to make these useful business machines. Now, we've talked about this with Wang, but there is the question, so, um, when the integrated circuit was developed, should it have been patented? And I think, you know, the army would have said yes, because that means that the civilian market will do earnings, and that'll make military goods cheaper. So it's a good thing for part of the country. It's not so clear that it's good for the whole country, particularly if you believe, as that quotation I showed you a moment ago said, that the, so, that the integrated circuit was sort of an idea whose time had come. In that case, why give people a monopoly in it? Now look, I can't tell in advance which ideas are going to have that quality, but again, it's an illustration that you know, what you believe about patents depends on what you believe about the quality of most of the ideas that come through the society. That's not something I can prove to you what the right answer for patents should be, but it's definitely a sticky point and you should appreciate it. Okay. So, home stretch. Uh, in the 1960s, IBM does this one last astonishing trick. It invests $5 billion, about $500 million of that is in R&D. The rest is in retooling its sales force, its engineers, and its manufacturing operations to create something called the System 360. And this is what we talked about before, this family of computers that all use the same software. So that if I start as a little company and buy the smallest computer I can buy from IBM and I grow, I don't have to rewrite my software every time. I can smoothly work my way up the ladder and if I'm rich enough at the end of my growth cycle, I can have the very biggest computer and it will still be happily running the programs that I wrote for the small one. So IBM decides to do this in 1960. It announces, it works on this for a long time, get a head start over the competitors because remember, the Justice Department has told them that you can't use patents to fence these guys out. So IBM wants a lead time. So it announces that it's going to do this in 1964, and it delivers the first unit about a year late in 1966. And this System 360 of these interoperable computers spans seven different machines in a range of computing power factor of about 25. Um, and the idea is that IBM is tired of having separate computers from separate divisions. It wants economies of scale and production. If I can build things in big runs, they're cheaper, and that's a good thing. It wants to train its marketing force and have its ads all focus on one family of machines, not be split up among seven machines, and the same thing for its service people. And, of course, software. Um, it does this largely because it's hearing footsteps. Honeywell, already before the System 360 is announced, builds a computer that's compatible with the last IBM machine. You can take its software over, and Honeywell cheerfully calls this machine the Liberator because it frees you from IBM. I mean, that's the glory days of marketing, right? Let's poke their eye out. Um, and Honeywell <laughs> does this because it believes that although IBM maybe could find a legal way to fence them out of this business, they won't do it because the Department of Justice is looking over IBM's shoulder, and Honeywell will be able to have this share of the market. And GE and RCA um, are what IBM is really afraid of, and they're also building computers in this period. GE in particular uh, is busily selling computers to academia, and IBM knows that the way you train the next generation of software guys is to have them work on a computer in academia, so they're worried that GE is about to come into the market in a huge way. 
And if GE or RCA comes in, it's a different deal. Those guys are big. Um, this is an astonishing business choice, right? Uh, IBM had this huge installed base of computers, and it foregoes it. It says your software is not going to be good anymore. You need to look at my computers versus Honeywell's versus all these other guys, and you'll pick me, but you're going to have to rewrite the software. And remember, the cost of the software is about the cost of the machine. Um, why does it do that? Because it's the last point in human history when it can do that. Remember that IBM machines have gone up from selling 1,000 of these things to 10,000. In 1960, there are 6,000 computers in the whole United States. But in 1973, IBM has an inkling, and it turns out to be true, there will be 100,000. And you want to get the standard right, this is the last time we can build a new family that will serve that market because it ain't going to go up from 100,000 to a million or something. This is the place where things are really taking off. You're willing to make things miserable for your installed base, give up that competitive advantage, but you know that this is the wave of big new users. They're really rolling the dice here. And indeed, that's what happens. IBM becomes a huge company out of this. They go from 1.8 billion to 7.2 billion. Some inflation in the 60s, but that's real money. This is not easy. And maybe a company the size of IBM is the only company that could do this. This, again, is a bigger thing in, in uh, real dollars than the Manhattan Project. Um, they have to write a million lines of code. People have done 100,000 before. Um, if you look at these classics like Fred... Frederick Brooks Jr.'s Mythical Man Month, the great traumatic experience in, in uh, programming is learning how to do this. This is a huge challenge. It doesn't work beautifully the first time. Um, they budget $125 million for it. They end up spending $500 million, 5,000 staff years, and it comes out a year late, and it doesn't work very well. It's a memory hog. So IBM gets this to work, and eventually they get it to work well, but... They put down a huge marker and had a lot of trauma getting there. Manufacturing is also a problem. IBM is learning how to build uh, transistors. Uh, anytime you open a plant to bake semiconductors, you have all horrible teething problems. IBM is no exception, but more importantly, um, while you're learning how to build transistors, uh, the people at marketing keep getting this book of orders, and IBM isn't going to make Univac's mistake. They're, by golly, going to service this market. And they keep writing down to the guy who's frantically trying to make his existing plant work, would you please double it? Would you please triple it? Would you please quadruple it? It's a nightmare if you're a manufacturing guy to make this happen. But IBM is good at this firehose form of innovation. When they want to do something, they have the resources to do it, and eventually they make this more or less right. What are the R&D priorities? Well, Fortran made a lot of programmers, and programmers are tired of once a week I get to see if my program works, so time sharing is something that they want. The IBM 360 is not originally set up with an architecture that favors that, uh, but IBM eventually makes it work, again with great suffering. And of course they know that the, the ultimate technology in this business is integrated circuits, and they're working really hard to make a machine that will run on integrated circuits. They're conservative. They might have tried to make the 360 work with integrated circuits. What they actually use is a kind of halfway technology in which they pattern uh, circuits, but they pattern them onto little pieces of ceramic. They don't do a true integrated circuit until 1970. In 1970, they come out with the 370. This does have ICs, and it's improved in other ways, but it's basically the 360 family, and that family remains dominant for the next decade or so. Uh, there's a new Department of Justice suit in 1969, but we'll probably talk about that later in the course. 
Uh, if you're IBM, you never get very far away from the Justice Department. What happens to the seven dwarfs? Well, they all find basically, in the larger sense of the term, niche markets. Honeywell uh, builds an IBM built a compatible machine with this late 50s thing. They do the same strategy for IBM's new family. RCA builds a compatible machine. And I just love this. The Soviets build IBM compatible machines, too, because there's software for this stuff all over the world. And why wouldn't I build a machine that runs it? Um, there are markets with specialized buyers. Uh, DEC gets into the business of scientific computers. Those computers become steadily more powerful until they're actually competing with the lower end of IBM's range. They have very educated buyers, so they have a very unique market. They don't need this sort of uh, holding the customer's hand specialty that IBM does, but they are actually eating into IBM's market share. And CDC builds supercomputers. Again, something that's above the high end of IBM's market. The interesting economics in this period is that you begin to get into this, frankly, somewhat weird world in which people mix and match components from different uh, suppliers, where they realize that it's not about uh, finding something that does my accounting package. It's about buying a bunch of components and putting them together in-house, and it'll all work. And so what happens is IBM may have pioneered tape drives. They may have pioneered disk drives after that. But other people begin to make them. And so companies like Memorex, Telex, Ampex, Storage Technology, Calcomp begin to do that. And Amdahl even makes a CPU. He's a former IBM guy. Um, what happens in this world of the 60s? Well, the market share of IBM stays about the same. Um, oh, and there's one other thing that happens, and that is that there are companies that buy up IBM computers and lease them themselves on terms that are cheaper than IBM will lease it to you for. And what's that about? Well, these companies believe that IBM was getting too much money on its leases because, because if I need seven years to pay off the lease and the customer keeps the machine for 10 years, then that's a kind of float for IBM, right? And these guys figured they could come in and undercut IBM and offer rates that uh, you know would be paid off in some in eight years, right? Um, and IBM gets back at these guys, right? And how does it do that? It keeps its R&D pace up so that those machines really do become obsolete on the seven-year standard. Um, but that's an interesting form of competition. OK, so as I say, there are more antitrust suits. We'll get back to that another time. But what happens is that the 1971 recession, all these companies have market share, but they're not making a lot of profit. And when the recession comes, um, they go into negative profit. RCA and GE, the ones that IBM is most afraid of, leave the market. And the remaining guys, this is a trivia test. I'm not sure I can do it. Burroughs, Univac, NCR, CDC, and Honeywell um, are what's left of the seven dwarfs. And they're called bunch after that. Completely not useful. So what do we think about this before I get out of the way and let Ed talk? Um, by the end of the 60s, you have a interesting comp uh, an interesting policy world. Um, we have told this story about Schumpeter and uh, Schumpeterian competition, where IBM may be a monopolist today, but it's afraid of being displaced by technically superior product, or it's afraid that some big guy will come in and supplant it. 
By the end of the 60s, it's pretty clear neither of those things is going to happen. The technologies have stopped moving forward with blinding speed. That's partly hindsight. IBM actually believed we'd go to superconducting electronics in the 60s. But by the end of the 60s, it's pretty clear that the world is, not going, to, is going to be about making existing technologies better incrementally and not these sort of grand challenge problems that IBM can put its fire hose on. Uh, and it's also clear now that RCA and, and GE have left that uh, IBM's not going to have to worry about big competitors. And that's probably logical, right? Because big competitors like to turn a profit too. And if they look at this market with this very big R&D bill and they say, you know, I could just spend my way into this business and have a 50% market share with IBM. But at the end of that, I would be part of a duopoly. And duopolists don't make as much money as monopolists. And I won't cover my R&D expenses of getting into this business. Right? So, you know, the market is in a place where not only have the big players left, but it probably doesn't pay a big player to come in and use its resources to compete with IBM. So you have this idea of a stable world, but nevertheless, the good features of the post-war world seem to roll along. IBM is still partly under pressure. These leasing companies um, innovating like mad. And what they're doing is they're saying that if I innovate fast enough, these other guys won't be able to copy me so much that they eat into my market share. They're not relying on the patent. They're relying just on the jump-off time of a few years uh, to stay ahead of the other guys. But because they have this enormous R&D budget, they can make that trick work. It's much better in a patent system, right? Patent system locks up knowledge for 20 years. Here we're in a world where you're free to imitate IBM, but it'll take you a while. That's a much smaller drag on the diffusion of knowledge than, than a formal patent system would be. Um, and what happens is that in certain areas, the technology doesn't go ahead that quickly. There's just not that much you can do in the way of incremental improvement. And by the end of the 60s, IBM's share of, of disk drives, in particular tape drives, um, is not that huge. And in fact, the other guys are making them better. Why? Because IBM did the heroic thing to figure out how to make it work in the first place. But the process of making stuff cheaper and slightly more efficient is endless. And it turns out that these little companies actually do this better than IBM's firehose model of, of um, innovation. Uh, and IBM is, of course, afraid that if you make enough of these components, eventually you'll take over the whole business. And a lot of their sort of antitrust sharp elbows stuff is about discouraging that behavior. So you end up in this pretty Schumpeterian world anyway. Even though, you know, the, the, the technology has slowed down a bit, where you're now looking at high prices, but uh, also uh, fast progress. Okay, so I'm going to skip that and close here. Um, so where are we? We have now raised the curtain on the rest of the course. Most of the history in this course will be post-1970. You have a world where commercial uses for computers are now bigger than the military and soon will be much bigger. Um, that's a very different and new world from the place where the military, you know, if I happen to write a contract, then the whole history of computing will change because I'm funding whirlwind. The military becomes sort of a net consumer of technology rather than a driver. Um, IBM is dominant, but there's vigorous R&D. And, you know, the rise of uh, things that look like venture capitalists means that the information asymmetry we talked about in this business is closing. And if you think about it, customers all have IT departments, and it's less of a big deal that IBM tells me that I have use for stuff. 
customers are quite sophisticated now in a way that they weren't about 1945. It's a world of big mainframes, big iron, but ICs are on their integrated circuits are on the horizon. That's an important thing. And what do you talk, one last comment about open source. You know, if I'm IBM and I'm a monopolist in big iron, what would I like software to be? Free, right? Because I can bill any price I want for the combined computer plus software system. And I rake off all the monopoly profits. And if somebody else is kind enough to write the computer software for free, that's just gravy for me. So, you know, that's something that IBM actually fosters because they're going to get a lot of that benefit if the software is competitively supplied and IBM is building the only mainframes that people will buy. So you have already at various levels emerging from the industry, even before GPL or Richard Stallman or any of that, open standards, a reliance on smart users. Let's get an academic to do some crazy thing in time sharing because eventually the rest of the world will want to do something similar. You have a lot of these dynamics that go through to our own day, present at least in nascent form in 1970. And with that, I'll stop. I'm more or less on the money and cede to Professor Lozowska. Remark about architectural aspects of the 360, which was innovative in a bunch of ways. And let me try and say a few words about what these systems were. Ed, you're not on camera. Could your tech people? We're working on that. Hang on. It's the joystick. I'll get there eventually. OK, great. So I have to confess to some nostalgia, because this was my first computer in like 1968 or something like that. So I realize I'm kind of ancient. But let me describe what the pieces were, just using this picture as a guide for a sec. This big box here was the CPU. And Steve talked about blinking lights. What you really had here were rows and rows of lights. And over here, there was a little knob. And you could turn the knob. And the knob would rotate about six different sets of labels over each row of lights. And you'd be able to look at different registers and stuff like that. Okay, So you would debug on this machine sometimes by single stepping it. There was a single step button on the front panel. Okay, These, these uh, sort of punch buttons down here. And it would like do the next instruction, and you'd see what happened to the light. So this is what happened on you know mini computers or sort of personal computers, early ones in uh, uh, the 1980s. Um, these rotary switches down here. I'll stop the nostalgia in a sec, but that was for bootstrap loading. Okay, you don't think of what boot really means these days, but uh, in these old systems, what you would do is you would set into these rotating switches the hexadecimal address of the device where the bootstrap program was loaded, typically the card reader, which was always device OOC. And there was enough microcode in the machine to read in exactly one card. And that card better have enough binary data on it that it could read in the next couple of cards. Okay, And it was literally the case, if you had a bootstrap deck, that there were more columns punched on the first few successive cards because you couldn't actually read a whole card with the bootstrap program. You could only read you know, a few binary columns of the card if you were. Okay, So to start the machine up, you would set these switches, and then you would hit a little button down there, and it would start bootstrapping. This uh, this was the emergency pull switch. If the thing caught fire, you would pull that and uh, <laughs> out of the room. Okay. Um, these are single platter disc packs here, sort of small discs. I'll show you bigger discs in a minute. These are these fancy tape drives that Steve talked about. All right. And the remarkable 
advance was, I don't know if you can see here, I'm making kind of a mess. These are vacuum channels, right? And what would happen is obviously there's a huge amount of inertia in these reels, right? So what would happen is four feet of tape would go down and then back up. So a total of eight feet here and eight feet here, okay? One was essentially the spool off reel and the other was the spool up reel, but sometimes you do a little back and forthing, right? And so the slack, the, so the, the reels here could be a little slow moving relative to the inertia because what would happen is the tape would move up and down in the vacuum column. Does that make sense? Okay, so the heads were in the middle and the capstans would drive, this is nine track tape, drive the tape across the heads and while the reels caught up, the tape would slop down or up in the vacuum channel. Okay, so you had sort of plus or minus eight feet of buffering, if you will, in these vacuum channels. And this was utterly revolutionary. These things back here, these are again more tape drives, are what are called channels. So if you read any of the material, you read about the wheel of reincarnation, right? So one of the things the 360 did was to invent this I.O. architecture in which there were not very smart computers out here that handled the low-level communication with the devices. So previously, typically, the CPU itself was responsible for all communication with devices. Make sense? So in the 360, these channels, which were, again, enormous boxes, this is a room full of machinery that would cost two to five million dollars or something like that if you purchased it, right? These channels offloaded work from the CPU and the wheel of reincarnation is eventually the channel got so expensive that you had to have more intelligence in the devices because you couldn't afford to be leaving that expensive channel idle, right? In, in the beginning it was you needed the channel because you couldn't afford to have the CPU doing the I.O. Pretty soon the channel got so fancy that you had to put more intelligence in the device. So the wheel of reincarnation is you keep making things more expensive and more intelligent and uh, things move out. So this machine, as Steve said, this line was announced in 1964, first shipped in 65. Initially there were six models announced, but there were more than a dozen shipped eventually. They announced more than 200 devices in 1964 and 65. 40 compatible peripherals, new disk drives, new tape drives, new printers, new card readers. Some of this carried forward from their previous lines, but a lot of it new. And a hundred other devices like card punches and stuff. Yeah, Marty. I'm just going to make an observation that will probably shock a lot of people that on that prior slide, the tape drive that you pointed to, Yeah. Um, just to give you a, a number that will amaze you, that tape drive architecture was still in use up until about 15 years ago as the 3420 tape drive. Right. So that design was so good it lasted well over 30 years. Right. This reinforces what Steve said about the system 370 being just the 360 in a black case instead of a blue or a red case. All right. So the, the basic design of the tape drive, which was dramatically better than anybody else's and eventually copied to some extent, did persist over 30 years. Okay. So um, here's the way to think about architecture before the 360. Every machine was custom. I mean, there were similarities, but it's just hard to imagine this because almost everything about the 360 we take completely for granted today, right? But prior to the 360, first of all, machines were split among market targets, business or scientific. So for IBM, the 1401 was the business machine and the 7090 and 7094 were the scientific machine. So what did this mean? This thing was focused on ASCII or EBCDIC character manipulation and to the extent that it had arithmetic, it was integer arithmetic 
or decimal arithmetic with two digits to the right of the decimal point because you were adding money. All right? So it was an adding machine and a character processing machine, and that was the business computer. The 7090 and 7094 had some semblance of floating point for doing scientific calculations, right? But fundamentally different machine architectures. Um, and in the 360, it was one machine architecture. All of these machines had different word lengths, 16 bits, 20 bits, 32 bits, 36 bits, variable word length, okay? Variable word length with the end of a word denoted by a special bit sequence, all right? And why was this? Well, if you were doing arithmetic, you needed a bigger word length. If you were doing business data processing, you could deal with a shorter word length. So all of these machines had different word lengths, with the exception, as Steve pointed out, of the 709, 7090, 7094 family. That, that narrow scientific family were compatible. But if you look across IBM's whole collection of machines or any other vendor's whole collection of machines, each one was unique. Some machines had binary arithmetic. Some machines had decimal arithmetic. Remember, the, the business machines were used for counting money, right? So why would you want to deal with binary? Uh, operand addressing differed from all these machines. One address, two address, three address. I actually originally learned to program on a simulated machine which had the bizarre name of Sex Attack. It was uh, in the 60s and you could get away with that. And Sex Attack stood for Sexadecimal Three Address Computer. All right? Sexadecimal is hexadecimal base 16, just kind of uh, making a better acronym. Three address means that instructions had three operand addresses to add. You would add the contents of location A to the contents of location B and put the result in location C. So there was some kind of accumulator, I guess, but there were no things that you'd think of as registers. So you would say, operate on the contents of this address and the contents of that address and stick the results there. Okay? Two address might say, add the contents of location A and the contents of location B and put them in an accumulator. Or alternatively, add the contents of location A to what's currently in register B. Okay? Uh, a one address machine might just say, add the contents of location A to an accumulator. All right? So a machine would typically be a one address or a two address or a three address machine. That was the architecture. Registers tended to be special purpose. I, it wouldn't occur to you that registers aren't general purpose today, okay? But prior to the 360, the vast majority of machines had a special program counter, a special accumulator, a special index register, right? So the idea that you could use a register as either an index register or an arithmetic accumulator, that was foreign. You had a set of registers in the machine, and they were allocated to particular purposes. And finally, since every machine was different, every machine had its own operating system. So that was the world prior to the 360, and that's not really much of an exaggeration. So here are the innovations of the 360. And again, these are going to seem so obvious, but they were absolutely revolutionary at the time. The 8-bit byte. And they fought over the 8-bit byte. There were, I mean, these were a set of great architects, and they fought over 6 bits versus 8 bits. 6 bits, partly because maybe they were going to do ASCII characters, which only took 6 bits. They wound up doing EBCDIC, external binary coded 
decimal interchange code or something like that. Anyway, EBCDIC was an 8-bit character representation, but they argued long and hard over the 6-bit versus the 8-bit byte, right? And settled on the 8-bit byte, and that became the standard. Sorry, yeah, that became the standard after that. Byte addressable memory. Typically, in earlier machines, you would load a word of data, okay? In the 360, you could logically fetch a byte. You could address any byte, okay? So instead of the instruction pointer or addresses being word boundaries, they were byte boundaries, which meant you had enough bits of addressing that you were willing to do byte addressing instead of word addressing, right? If you had 32-bit words, you need another couple addressing bits to be able to do that. 32-bit words was new. And let me say that um, a, a real innovation here, I said down at the bottom, many brilliant trade-offs, right? It, it, it turns out to be incredibly synergistic that you have the 8-bit byte and the 32-bit word, right? And that the machine is byte addressable, but it happened that you had to, that, that the architecture fetched half words, right? Half word boundaries, and there were certain alignment restrictions. Some things could only happen on word boundaries and some things on half word boundaries, all right? That turned out to simplify the architecture and the addressing incredibly because you didn't have to actually fetch every byte, all right? And four bytes fit into a word. Imagine you got 32-bit words and six-bit bytes. You got yourself, you know, a little bit of a problem, right? So, so the point is, once they made these decisions, in many cases, they were making them for implementation simplicity, okay? And the, the 360 got a bit garbaged up over the years as it got extended into the 370, but the basic architecture was incredibly sweet. Everything made sense. An analogy, for those of you who do operating systems, in my mind, is the, uh, the original Unix file system, okay? Which is an unbelievably sweet, design. You can explain it in an undergrad class in an hour and everybody gets it and you can implement it in, you know, a simple course project. And by the time you do the Berkeley fast file system and sort of move on, deal with scalability issues and performance issues, it suddenly gets so much of a furball attached to it that it's a bit of a mess. But in the beginning, it was just sweet. Every trade-off was perfect and that was really true of the 360. Two's complement uh, arithmetic used across the line. First commercial use of a microcoded CPU. Right? So again, microcoding was originally uh, invented by Morris Wilkes, like many other systems things in uh, Great Britain in the 1950s, but the 360 line was the first line to use uh, microcoding in a commercial uh, machine. They had the IBM floating point architecture. That was subsumed many years later by IEEE floating point. But up to this point, Every vendor and every computer had its own floating point representation, right? And getting floating point right, if you're a numerical analyst or a computer architecture, is incredibly difficult. There's a fellow from Berkeley named Belleville Kahn who won the Turing Award and was elected to the National Academy of Engineering for doing IEEE floating point, okay? And Belleville, Belleville's crusade for a decade, he used to give talks in which he would, he's a, new, a renowned numerical analyst, he would put 16 programmable calculators, this was in the 1980s, right, on uh, a board on a lab table in the front of the room, and his colloquium would be to enter simple floating point calculations that had an obvious right answer, 
sequentially into all 16 calculators and get 12 different answers. Some of them flamingly wrong because of underflow or overflow or stuff like that. Okay? And his pitch to HP, which paid him an enormous amount of money as a consultant, was, you know, one of these days, somebody is going to fly his private plane into the side of a hill, and he's going to be using your screwed up floating point, okay, on your screwed up navigation package, and you're going to lose your shirt. That was, of course, before HP recently lost its shirt for other problems. But <laughs> the point is, there were all of these different floating point representations, and they all had terrible idiosyncrasies and quirks. And you couldn't take a program, a scientific program, from one computer to another and have any hope of getting the right answer. Okay? On some machines, you'd get an underflow exception. On some machines, it would compute the right answer. On some machines, it would quietly compute a flamingly wrong answer. So this floating point architecture was important. Uh, EBCDIC became the standard character representation for the in, uh, industry for years. The IO architecture channels I've talked about was really novel. Also, the way the machine context switched. PSW is what's called the, the processor status word. And supervisor calls are how you initiated IO, or how you transitioned into the, uh, into the supervisor. So uh, the start IO operation, supervisor calls, the processor status word, all of these, this whole architecture was new. And again, tons of neat trade-offs, but most importantly, this was a family of machines. Do you have something else to add, Marty? No? Okay. All right. So Steve said some of this. The performance range and announcement was a factor of a thousand in core memory, right? And that was 60 times the previous largest available, okay? From 8 kilobytes to 8 megabytes. I don't know if, if in the early years they shipped the machine with 8 megabytes. The machines I worked on had 512K of bytes of memory, and that was plenty, you know? You used to be able to run, I don't know, 20 time-sharing systems, uh, time-sharing users are 30 on a virtual machine operating system on a one MIP machine with 512K of memory before there was, you know, Windows. Um, the cycle time was between one microsecond and 200 nanoseconds, and the uh, actual execution speed, instruction, ex oh, sorry, that's a factor of five. The processing speed varied over a factor of 50 among the machines on the line. So it went from the performance equivalent to the 1401, which was their business machine, to twice the previous fastest system. And over time, as they announced more machines, the performance range got much wider. But importantly here, a factor of 50 in processing speed and a factor of 1,000 in attachable memory right, in a single line of machines. Uh, how many CPUs did they have? Well, it, here's the picture. Right? These are all CPU numbers. Now, it's, it's a little funny because uh, you know, th they were good at marketing. So there was at least one machine uh, at, at the low end of the line, I forget if it was the 30 or the 20 or the 25, that was a slightly higher end machine that was just brain damaged. Right? So change the clock speed, change the crystal oscillator or something like that. Okay? So it's not really a new CPU, but most of these were different CPUs. So when it was announced in 1964, there were six models announced. In principle, these were sort of mid-range systems, and these were higher-end scientific systems. The Model 50 was the standard system that everybody had, and it was, think of it as about a one MIP machine, about a million instructions per second, roughly. These three were actually never produced, right? And the next year, the Model 65 and 75 were announced, which became the sort of higher-end scientific machines, right? The models 
20 and 25 were uh, sort of simple machines for small business. The 20 had fewer registers, so it wasn't quite the same family, right? Most these machines, like the 50, had you know 16 general purpose registers and four floating point registers, 32-bit floating point registers that you could gang together to do 64-bit calculations. That's the basic architecture. Okay, these were somewhat brain dead machines. The 44 was a machine that very few people bought. It was essentially a low performance scientific machine. So it had more floating point registers and stuff like that, typical of these higher end machines, but with a slow clock speed. All right, so they're finding niches for these machines. Um, the 67, a machine introduced in uh, late 1966, had dynamic address translation. So that was their first virtual memory machine and the only virtual memory machine in this whole family until you got to System 370. Okay? And Steve sort of mentioned this. This was a response to uh, MIT's project, uh, Multics, which demanded a virtual memory machine. And uh, RCA, was it RCA or Honeywell? I've forgotten was able to provide that machine and IBM couldn't. But IBM felt sort of bludgeoned into providing a machine that could do virtual memory. Virtual memory wasn't new. Again, Maurice Wilkes had been involved in virtual memory back in the 50s. But IBM did not have dynamic address translation. So dynamic address translation on the 67, and the place where I was an undergrad moved from a 50 to a 67 after I'd been there a year or two. Curiously, every time I've changed universities from undergrad to grad school, and then from grad school to the University of Washington, I was blasted back from time-sharing to punched cards. Right? So my theory is I could change jobs now and take some other university back to the Stone Age. They would have to go back 30 years, but it never failed. At Brown, we had wonderful time-sharing, and Toronto was punched cards. Toronto eventually went to adequate time-sharing. UW was punched cards. It's just really shocking. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So uh, the basic premise of going with this whole System 360 thing that people could start with a smaller machine and as their needs grew, they could easily upgrade. Absolutely. Did it actually happen or would people just buy No, it, it absolutely did happen. It happened all the time. But additionally, applications were totally compatible across the line. And most importantly, the same operating system ran all across the line. Not like okay? Java, huh? It, it, it really did, okay? And the same peripherals worked all across the line, okay? So IBM's previous machine, each one had a different frigging I.O. architecture, so you couldn't use the same peripherals on different machines. So everything had to be different. These were sort of high-end scientific machines, okay? And the 195 was introduced late on in 1971, and that was essentially a bridge to System 370. The System 370 machines were basically the System 360 machines with sexy black cases, except that they all had dynamic address translation, whereas the 67 was the only dynamic address translation, only VN-capable machines in, uh, in, in uh, the 360. Okay, get the idea? Yeah. A question. Do you know if any of those machines are actually still in operation for mission-critical applications right now? I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine it's the case. and. There isn't even one functioning at the Computer History Museum, is my understanding from uh, Wikipedia or something like that. Uh, occasionally, Hank Levy and I, both of whom grow up on these machines, try and buy a front panel on eBay. But uh, they're ridiculously expensive, which must mean they're in short supply, too. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have like a Model 50 or 67 front panel. You got one? What's ridiculously expensive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we buy like little PDP-11 and PDB-8s for a couple thou to have around. But, but yeah, like 10 thou for a front panel or something like that. So, um, you mind going back? 
Um, okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, what was sort of like the marketing release uh, policy? This, you know, and how now we have newer operating systems. You know, like a, a Vista coming out. You right. Know, or you know, in you have this awareness of you know Intel's going to be coming out with a new chip in like six months. Right. Uh, what was it like with this? Was IBM having some yeah. sort of like marketing? Uh, you know, this is what we're going to have mm. in the near future. Well, everybody leased these machines. So uh, they were available for sale, and the sale price was was stated. Again, you can find this. The, the one place thing you can get to from Wikipedia that's cool is the original IBM announcement of the line. It's only a couple of pages, and it doesn't have a lot of detail. But the price of systems supposedly ranged from uh, an announcement from a couple hundred thousand dollars to five million dollars. Although the five million dollars is probably for a fully loaded Model 70, which they never shipped. Okay, but people didn't do that. They just leased it. So, you know, these machines. Uh, Steve mentioned that IBM eventually moved to uh, outsourcing, putting third parties in the support business. But when I was an undergrad from '68 to '72, I mean, our IBM machine came with three IBM guys, right? And they just lived in the computing center and prayed around this baby and kept it running. Right? And so. So basically, we had three guys in white shirts and ties who were in charge of keeping this thing running. They really gave you unbelievably good service, and part of what they tried to do was to get you to lease up over time. So, you know, where I was an undergrad, had a 50 for a couple of years, and then moved up to a 67, which was the only machine that you could viably run timesharing on. Let me move ahead here, because we are going to time out. I, I want to talk about I.O. for a sec. This is the, the, uh, the disk system that I grew up on. Our, our university had a pair of these things. Think of this as being about six feet tall, okay? And this is probably about two feet across. So this is eight drives plus a spare. You could have eight running at any one time. Each of these had 20 surfaces, and you could unmount them and stick them on top. So this is 20 surfaces, and that's 20 surfaces. These are drawers. You'd pull the drawer out because this was one of the first systems with a removable disk pack. They weren't hermetically sealed like Winchester's or anything like that. Okay? So on top of these things would be little plastic cases, and the plastic case would have a bottom and a spin-off top with sort of a, like a cake pan something like that, okay? Uh, and so you would take this thing off and you would spin it onto the disc and take the disc off the spindle and remove it, all right? And uh, a problem they had originally was they hadn't tied these things to the floor and they hadn't interlocked the drawers, so you could open a couple of drawers and the whole thing would tip over. They resolved that problem <laughs> fairly quickly. This was so the controller. So remember I said you would have a channel and then you would have a controller. That's the wheel of incarnation. So this was the controller for the discs. The important thing is each one of these babies, all right, which think of it as being the size of a very grand layer cake, held 29 megabytes of data. Okay, so this is the size of a refrigerator. This five refrigerator plus a few refrigerators here thing held about 250 megabytes of data. All right, and we had a pair of those. That was the whole sort of reasonable university at the time. Now, if you go to the Dell website and look at buying little disks today, this is a Dell. Uh, 500 gig disk that you can buy on a Dell, right? I just want to compare a few things because this is important, okay? So the improvement ratio from this enormous sucker to this thing in capacity, it's a factor of 2,000, okay? In cost, the improvement is a factor of 5,000. Down here in cost per megabyte, all right? Recognizing, by the way, that this cost has to have there's been six-fold inflation since 1965. Okay, so accounting for inflation, the cost per megabyte 
there's a 10 million fold improvement in that period of time. Okay? Here's what's interesting and important. The latency okay, has only improved by, at best, a factor of six. 60 was the worst for this device. 20 was the best. So you could get 20 milliseconds latency. Right? And you're going to get about 10 milliseconds latency out of this guy. Now, granted, there's more caching and stuff like that, but a factor of two to six, and the transfer rate has improved by only about a factor of a thousand. This doesn't account for RAID and stuff like that. So it's important to realize that latency has barely improved at all since 1965, right? While price per unit capacity has improved by a factor of 10 million and capacity by a factor of 5,000. So this has architectural implications. This is my favorite slide. I managed to use it in every course. It's, it's from Jim Gray at Microsoft. Um, and here's what he does. He, he uh, puts orders of magnitude of storage latency here in sort of computer terms. You know, registers, on-chip cache, onboard cache is a factor of 10, worse than getting to registers. Memory is a factor of 100. Disk is a factor of a million. Taper optical is a factor of 10 to the ninth. Okay, that's orders of magnitude difference. And then he puts it in human terms, finding something in a room, in a building, 60 miles away in Olympia, on Pluto, in Andromeda. Okay, if you think about orders of magnitude, okay, going to memory as opposed to processor registers, that's like driving to Olympia. Okay, relative to me finding something in this room, finding something on this desk here, you know, searching through the papers on my desk is equivalent to register storage. Going to disk, okay, is the equivalent of traveling to Pluto. Right? That's because capacity has increased enormously and latency still sucks. Alright? So from a computer system design problem, caching in order to cope with that terrible latency is of ever-increasing importance, right? So if you're an operating system designer, a file system designer, you've got a career opportunity, right? Because latency just isn't getting any better, so we have to compensate for it, okay? Let me talk about 360 people, and this is essentially the end. There were obviously a bajillion people worked on this. The great ones were Fred Brooks, who was the overall project manager. And Fred left IBM after the 360 shipped and uh, founded the Department of Computer Science at the University of North Carolina in about 1966. Gene, Arch Gene Amdahl was the head overall architect. He obviously left IBM eventually to found Amdahl. Uh, Jerry Blau, uh, a Dutch fellow, was uh, an architect on many aspects. In particular, he gets credit for the 8-bit byte, and he did the Model 67. I actually couldn't find a, uh, a, a photo of Jerry on the web, so I sent email to Fred, who's an old friend, and uh, Fred and his wife had had, uh, uh, had, had coffee at uh, Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands with Jerry a year ago. So that's a photo of uh, Jerry at the, uh, at the Netherlands International Airport drinking coffee with Fred and his wife. Um, but, you know, these are the guys who really made this happen. Let me say a word about operating system software, and then we'll take a few questions and break. Okay? So the main operating system, let me go back to the machines themselves, if I can find them. I apologize for the big mess I've made of all these slides. There it is. Okay. 
Okay. Um, the main operating system for these machines was called MVT. And MVT stood for multi-programming with a variable number of tasks. Right? The simpler operating system and the one that worked first was called MFT, which is multi-programming with a fixed number of tasks. So in an MFT system, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm starting to reveal, you know, why, you know, despite dumping on the incredible porkiness of, uh, of you know, Linux and OS X and Windows, these are pretty simple systems. In MFT, what would happen is when you would boot the system up on the machine, you would say, uh, you know, I've got 512K of memory. The first 100K is going to be the operating system. And of the remaining 412K, I'm going to break it up into a fixed number of what are called partitions. And two of them are going to be 50K, and one of them is going to be 150K. Some, and that doesn't quite add up, but you get the idea, right? And then jobs come in from a card reader, and on the job card, you say what size partition you need, right? And what the operating system does is just queue the jobs for those partitions based on the size of the job card. And that's how much memory you've got. There's no virtual memory in these systems or anything like that, okay? Stuff ran in physical memory. You know, if you had a really large job, you would boot MFT with a single partition in which all 400K bytes of memory left over after the operating system were available to that job. And if the job still wouldn't fit, you would do manual overlays, right? So, and certainly big compilers used to be overlaid with themselves, okay? The compiler would go out to disk and haul its second part on top of its first part and then branch to its second part. Get the idea? Okay, crazy stuff. What MVT did was to allow the size of those partitions to vary dynamically as the system was running. Right? So um, you could coalesce two 50 kilobyte partitions into a 100 kilobyte partition, for example. Okay? So uh, it's a variable number of tasks. You could coalesce these partitions, but you obviously had a fragmentation problem, right? You could have memory divided up. Here's the OS, you know. So you had a free small one here and an occupied big one here and a free one there. And you didn't have any jobs that were small enough to run here or here. You had a job that would be small enough to run in these two together if they were contiguous. But again, programs had to run contiguously because you had base displacement addressing. There was a base register that said, here's the start of the program. All right? So how would you deal with that? Well, you would do essentially what you'd call garbage collection today. You would stop the machine. You would copy this program down to here, move it down in physical memory. You'd reset its base register to there, and then you would have a big clump of available memory here. You get the idea? Okay. So that's MVT, right? And MVT, it took them a few years to get it running, as Steve mentioned. So these machines were originally shipped with MFT in 66. By the time I was there in uh, 68, they were running MFT. Uh, sorry, MVT. Right? Then the model 67, the uh, again virtual memory system, uh, the uh, um, the the uh, the official time sharing system for the model 67 from IBM never really worked well. Right? So what ran on this? was a program called CP67, which was a terrific virtual memory operating system. You know, it's funny. We hired Steve Gribble here five years ago as the greatest young operating systems guy. And his work was on virtual machine monitors. And I realized I published my first paper on virtual machine monitors the year before Gribble was born. And 
To first approximation, the only thing that's changed aside from nifty new applications of VMs, okay, is that the Intel architecture is not virtualizable, which means you have to stand on your head to write a VMM that's reasonable performant, reasonably performant. Virtualizable, a, a guy in the early 70s, Bob Goldberg at Harvard, wrote a thesis on what constituted a virtualizable architecture. It happened that 370 was one. It means that whenever a, th that the only way in which a user program can modify shared machine state, like the timer or something like that, winds up generating an interrupt. And that allows the VMM to get control. If you have ways in which from user state you can modify shared machine state, all right, without an interrupt getting generated, without the OS getting control, then the architecture isn't virtualizable and you have to stand on your head. You have to maybe emulate those instructions. Right? And the Intel architecture until the brand new one was not virtualizable. So people have put, once they discovered that we really needed VMMs again, they put five years worth of unbelievable grad student labor into getting reasonable performance out of VMMs on a non-virtualizable architecture. Okay, So CP67 was originally developed by folks at the IBM Cambridge Scientific Center because they were trying to do operating system development and they only had one machine and they had to share it. So they wanted to be able to boot multiple copies of an operating system okay, in, uh, in, uh, on the same machine. And this wound up being the salvation of the Model 67. Out comes this virtual memory machine. It has a dynamic address translation box on it. IBM's official operating system for it, which was called TSS360, time-sharing system, was an unbelievable dog. It never ran. What people would do is boot CP67 and start up many, many virtual machines. When, when you get there, you know, you, you would log on to a typewriter terminal, up would come a virtual machine, and you would boot in it an operating system. And the typical operating system was called CMS, the Cambridge Monitor System, which was a dumb-as-dirt time-sharing system. Right? And so you could run programs. It had a very simple editor. You had a form of email. And here's how I would send you email on CP67 running CMS. Ready for this? I would remember I was running on a virtual machine, so I would route my virtual card punch to your virtual card reader. And I would dump a file to you. And it would show up as virtual cards in your reader. Right? And you would get a little prompt that said, hey, there's something in your card reader. And you hadn't put anything there yourself, so you would get what was in the reader, and it would turn out to be an email message from me or a file I'd sent you or something like this. Okay? So what you would have is multiple instances of CMS running in different people's virtual machines, and that's how we did time sharing. And the way you would run batch simultaneously is you would run an instance of a batch operating system in a virtual machine, and that instance of the batch operating system would only have a single partition. If you wanted multiple batch jobs simultaneously, you would boot multiple copies of that. Does that kind of make sense? Right? So you'd be able to run parallel streams of batch jobs and time-sharing users, and you'd support like 30 virtual machines on a system that had basically uh, a one MIT processor, 512K of memory, and the paging device was a drum with four megabytes on it. And it ran great. That's just sort of unthinkable given all that operating systems uh, have to do today, and bluntly, the fact that they're coded in high-level languages, which may not be quite as efficient. I mean, this thing, this, everything here was lovingly coded in assembly language. When I was an undergrad, I worked on a what-you-see-is-what-you-get hypertext text editor that was all written in 360 assembly language. 
couldn't possibly write it in a high-level language. It would have been too slow. So that's the basic idea. When they moved to the 370, all of these machines had virtual memory. Okay? The original operating system for the 370, they wanted a virtual memory operating system, but they wanted people to get that same sort of comfortable MVT feeling. Right? So they would put essentially CP67 on these machines and they would boot MVS as the only host operating system. It was crazy. So the original virtual memory batch operating system for the system 370 was CP67 running a copy of MVT in its one virtual machine. Sounds like craziness. Anyway, that's the story on these. Importantly though, MFT and MVT ran across this entire line of machines and was the bread and butter for more than a dozen years, right? Over a huge performance spectrum of machines, CP67 ran on the Model 67 and eventually became the foundation of the operating system that ran on the Model uh, the, the 370. So CP67 stuck around for literally decades. Marty, question? So I'll, I'll just wrap this up. Yeah, you're trying to finish. Um, so the interesting political thing that happened with CP67 was it got rebranded ultimately VM370. Right. And so people kept buying it. Primarily it sold into the research and the academic community and where people are doing things like operating system research or, or wanted to boot multiple VMs. Uh, from the sales cycle side, IBM wanted to sell you copies of MVS, which was their big batch-oriented Yep. So MVS stood for multiple virtual storage. So MVS was the System 370 successor of MVT. And so MVT became MVS. Right, and the first brain-dead versions of MVS, the intermediate here, were the ones that I called CP plus MVT. So the interesting part of this story is if you fast forward 20 years to the late 80s, uh, IBM made a determined effort to kill what was then the VM product. Right. And there's a, a big, long political story of why that happened internally. Well, 10 years later, when mainframe sales were almost dead in the water, uh, what the AIX group, the IBM Unix variant, found out was the only way to get it to run was to run it under VM. So the product that they tried to kill actually helped save the Save them, right. Later, because it was the way you could run units. Yeah, so various people, we'll stop in 30 seconds, bought the Model 67, assured by IBM that TSS would run on it, and it never did. So those places, like the University of Michigan and Brown, typically universities, and some big time-sharing services as well, went to CP67, and CP was an extremely efficient, extremely successful system that uh, lasted a long time. We've gone way over, sorry. Any final comments or questions from Berkeley or San Diego? We're good. Okay, remember next week, Gordon Bell. Gordon was VP for engineering at DEC when they did the mini computers. So this should be great. He'll be speaking from Berkeley. So let's start on time next week. We'll see you.